And we're live. So, for all of those of you who came out last week, you got to see a awesome show that we had Dean Barnes as our guest. And he shared with us his personal mission on amassing a hockey card collection, a collection of nearly 100 black and biracial players who appeared in at least one NHL game since Willie O'Reilly became the first black player to play on January 18, 1958. Plus, he also kind of told us about his own personal journey as a person of color who, from his youth, discovered his love of hockey, meeting his idol, Tony McKegney, and how he still to this day plays the Canadian pastime. So we hope that people get inspiration from looking at his collection and understanding that, you know, collecting can be whatever you want to make it to be. And it's also important that it tells a diverse story of our traditional nature of collecting. You can make it anything you want it to be. You can make it inspirational as you want to be. And you can be yourself and not be afraid of who you want to collect. So with that, we're really excited to talk about tonight's guest. And Kent's going to curb his enthusiasm and, and take it from here. So welcome everybody to episode number 31 for tonight. We're honored to have, and that's right, not just one, but two. Uh, the gentlemen we're about to introduce to you tonight are what is known as philatelists. What is a philatelist? It's one who collects and or studies stamps. Yes, yeah, so we'll be talking about the world of stamp collecting, the synergies of stamp collecting and card collecting. So please welcome the host of the YouTube channel, Conversationist with Philatelists, Michael Cortez and Charles Epting to the show. Hey guys. Hi. Hey. Thank you. Thank you guys very much for having us. No, thank no you for being here. And I'd like to mention that they're very well dressed. Um, <laughs> so just make sure, you know, that's a, a good representation of the, that end of the hobby and we're wearing t-shirts. So you get to see where we stack. <laughs> so gentlemen, can you give uh, the both, can both of you give us a little introduction as to how Philately started for the, each of you? Uh, when did it all start and what is it about stamp, stamp collecting that keeps you hooked to this day? So, uh, one of you take to start, Michael. I'll turn it over to you first. All right. Sure. Yeah. Um, my introduction to the hobby started around eight years old with my father, um, third generation philatelist. He, uh, when he started me in the hobby, he wasn't just a philatelist himself. He was a stamp dealer as well. So he would go out and buy collections either privately or from auction houses, and then and then repackage them and, and ship them to other auction houses or sell them to other collectors privately. So I kind of got into the hobby at a young age on more of the um, pricing material, selling material style. So he would have me price items, find items, obviously not at eight years old, but then as I got older, uh, high school, college, things like that, I would start buying collections with him and he would bring me into the hobby to show me the passion that other collectors have and kind of the what we can do to help other people find their collections so i had a lot more um sort of circuitous route to the hobby than michael michael was sort of born into it and raised with it and, and didn't have uh, much of a much of a chance i guess you could say um <laughs> I, I i was born with the collector gene so growing up um it was baseball cards it was fossils it was legos it was books it was everything um, really, except for stamps, even a little bit of coin collecting, but stamps just never caught my interest. I don't know why, mm -hmm. um, but it just wasn't wasn't a part of my my makeup um, until I got to college. Um, I was at the University of Southern California, was looking for some sort of hobby that would help keep me busy, something that initially would be affordable and small, um, which very quickly I realized that stamp collecting stops being affordable and small um, <laughs> at, a, at a very fast pace. But um, really, for me, it just started as a way to pass the time. I was studying sort of the cultural history of the 1920s and 30s and 
I just got to thinking, what were stamps like back then? Um, so I started buying them on eBay. You can buy, you know, a couple of stamps for, you know, a hundred stamps for a dollar or whatever. And I just started doing that, just amassing more and more stamps and putting them into my album. Um, and from there, it just sort of grew into uh, more and more a part of my life until I was presented with the opportunity to, um, you know, make it a, a full-time career, uh, which was not the path I was planning on taking in life. But, um, you know, you sort of reach these crossroads and you, you can't say no to certain opportunities. And um, yeah, I've only been collecting stamps for probably about seven years now. Um, and I've been in the business for five of those years. So uh, it's all been sort of uh, very, very rapid since I discovered my love of, of this hobby. It, you did hit on one thing. It, they are small. They are. They are. Uh, the problem is you can get a lot of them really easily. <laughs> and then you end up with bankers boxes full of stamps and, and albums full of stamps. And uh, yeah, they're, they're sort of deceptive in that way. It, exactly. Exactly that, but um, just really tiny, you know, much smaller and thinner than than the cards. <laughs> um, so, so when it comes to stamp collecting for both of you, so what what is it about the stamps? Is it like the picture, the story? Like, what is it that that makes you still be interested in the hobby right now? For me, when I started out, um, it was all about the design. I was really drawn to some of the more classic Newfoundland, some of the French uh, issues, Canada, you know, the, the designs that they put on these stamps were just absolutely breathtaking. Um, the, some of the French colonies from the, the 20s, 30s, 40s, they were just gorgeous. But now as I grow into the hobby more, it's definitely the stories. It's definitely the more of the postal history, more of the journeys that the that the covers go on, the history behind the scarce issues themselves. So it's it, what draws you in is the is the eye appeal, and then I feel like what what hooks you, what gets you is is the stories. I don't mean I feel like I'm just gonna take an opposing. <laughs> so, so for me early on, because um, I was collecting mostly American stamps, common stuff from the early 20th century. And the designs are nice, you know, oh, that's Teddy Roosevelt or that's Martha Washington. They're they're fine. They're kind of your standard, you know, bread and butter presidents and founding fathers and things. For me, it was it was just the thought that um again, I was studying the 20s and 30s very heavily. So the thought that Franklin Roosevelt could have used this stamp or F. Scott Fitzgerald could have used this stamp. Mm, and, yes. and even if you know, even if it, even your everyday person, your 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 average boy or girl in the 1920s, this is what they would have licked and stuck on a letter. Who knows yeah. what that letter may have contained? For me, it was just very evocative that somebody a century ago, um, you know, used this. And, um, you know, coins are, are neat and you can certainly imagine coins changing hands. But stamps, the fact that by using them, you sort of necessarily have to destroy them. Um, you have to just obliterate them with ink. I, th I think right. that's interesting <laughs> as well. Like you can prove that it did its job. You can prove that it served its purpose. Um, so that was really fun for me. And, and that was how I got into it. Of course, the artistry, um, you know, the stories behind the stamps is always really interesting too. how stamps have been used for propaganda by different governments and how stamps have, um, uh, you know, it's sort of the, the social connotations behind stamps, I think, are very interesting as well. Nowadays, most people are used to um, you know, going to the post office and they get a flag stamp and they don't really think much about it. Maybe they go buy the new Star Wars or Harry Potter stamps, but stamps used to have a lot more um, cultural gravity, I feel, and who did and didn't make it on a stamp um, really told you a lot about who was in power. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of the story is really interesting as well. That's true. That's very, very true. 
I but think, also, I, see I, the, I think we sort of take the designs for granted today. Yeah, it's just, mm-hmm. just a flash. Yeah, well, I, I never thought of it that way in terms of a social political uh, theater in terms of using stance, but that is very true. Um, and then, and going back to what Michael said, it's very his his answer was very has a lot of similarities to card collecting. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, very much so. And the the opposing views aren't so opposing. They they work in synergy <laughs> with each other. Well, I, I feel like we just sort of yeah we we've gone like backwards on everything. Mm-hmm. Like Michael started <laughs> on the dealer side and then became a collector, and I flipped. We're just uh, uh, I guess complementary in that regard. It's, it's almost <laughs> like the whole uh, idealist and uh, realist. So mm-hmm. I'm the idealist, Kent's the realist. So uh, it's the same thing with in your world too. So, so gentlemen, not too long ago during the last week in July, the National Sports Collectors Convention, uh, which is very uh, well known for us card collectors, was held at the Donald E. Stevens Convention Center in Chicago. Interestingly enough, you both re- just recently attended the Great American Stamp Show in Chicago at the same venue that ran from August 12th to the 15th. What was that like for the both of you and how was the turnout for it? So and I, I mentioned when we spoke briefly last night, I went to the National in 2000 when it was in uh, Anaheim. So that was my last uh, real card show. Uh, and I didn't realize that we just missed it. Had I known, I would have tried to go in a week early or something to, <laughs> to catch that for a day. But it, this is a big deal for us because like most hobbies, I'm sure card collecting is the same. There's been this um, real lack of uh, in-person interaction for the last year and a half. Um, there's been a lot of Zoom meetings. That's why Michael and I started our podcast was just to – you know, catch up with people during the pandemic, but um, no amount of that can replace shaking someone's hand or digging through a box or that sort of thing. So um, there was a show in San Francisco two weekends before uh, that was um, sort of the, uh, the appetizer before the big, you know, great American stamp show put on by the American philatelic society is the big annual national show. And um, 2020's edition was virtual and it was fun. Um, but to, you know, it, it really felt like we were back. It was sort of the first time since March of 20, what was it? 2020, I guess that, um, that I, I felt at home again. I felt like, uh, mm. our, our world had sort of returned to normal, taking all proper precautions and whatnot, you know, not being reckless by any means, but, but it right. felt like we were back. Yeah. The, the show before that was Nebraska in 2019 and attendance wise, I feel like it was, it was almost similar. It was the neck, I would say. Yeah, Um, it really was. There's been a lot of pent-up demand for something like this. Mm Chicago is a great central location. It's easy to get to from everywhere. And, uh, and, and, yeah, it was was a lot of fun to be back. Yeah. Great. Uh, For those of us in our audience who are not familiar with stamp shows, when you're at a stamp show, what does one do? For example, is it similar to sports car collecting shows where there's a lot of buying and trading that gets done on the show floor? Yeah, so there's a a bunch of different ones there's you can start out with just the basic bourse show where it's just regular dealers with their stock inventory you go and you just buy there there may be like a little kids booth or an activity booth uh that you can go to but these much larger shows like the one in chicago there's really there's an auction going at the same time there's all these exhibits oh. uh, at, um what how many exhibits 800 frames I of think exhibits we're a thousand frames yeah, thousand stamp, frames of exhibits exhibiting and I, I i hope we can talk about that more because i feel like that's a piece of the hobby that um uh people don't outside of the hobby don't really know about um the mm-hmm. fact that there's competitive stamp collecting yeah um and people spend their entire lives and their entire fortunes trying thousands to, and thousands of dollars <laughs> exactly trying to you know, collect all the right pieces to tell a wow. story. And then there's accredited judges, both on a national and international level. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like, I feel like it's the, um, the, the IOC 
versus like the NFL. Like you've got the national circuit and then you can sort of graduate and go to the Olympics or something. And um, people take their competitive stamp collecting and exhibiting very seriously. Of course, there's all sorts mm-hmm. of, um, you know, behind the scenes politics and uh, you know, <laughs> just like oh, yeah. with any competitive league. Um, so yeah, that, yeah, that's one part of a stamp show. Again, yeah, you've got the dealers you can go buy, but um, Mike, Mike, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I, no, it's a, it's a I, huge I part. I mean, part of it is just fascinating. Yeah, yeah you ahead, were talking Mike. about people going all over the place. I mean, mm-hmm. we were talking. I was talking to one gentleman um, after hours about he'd won a large gold, and I was asking him what he was going to do and what this meant for him now. And he said, "Oh, this is fantastic! I'm going to London. I'm going to Cape of Good Hope. I'm going to Munich. I'm going to." And he's got to go to all these different places to exhibit his his stamp collection so that he can try and win this massive international award but he's got to show it at all these different it was just it was phenomenal uh and it's just yeah can you kind of explain to our audience what the large gold is um charles you might yeah, so, know so, a bit more um, about that one <laughs> so, so when you show your exhibit and uh basically what an exhibit is um, there's what are called frames, which are a picture of big, mm-hmm. um, sort okay. of eight frame picture frame sort of thing where you can fit 16, uh, regular letter size pages in it. Okay. So, um, so you, you tell your story sort of in units of 16 pages, um, all the way up to 10 frames, which would be 160 pages worth of material. Wow. And the, the accredited judges go through and they look for certain things. What's the importance of your collection? What's the presentation like? How rare is your material? And they give you points on a scale of, of one to a hundred. And uh, there's different metal levels, so it goes from silver to large silver to vermeil to large vermeil to gold to large gold, which is uh, the crowning achievement. That's like a gold medal at the Olympics. If your stamp exhibit gets a large gold, that's um, that's the the cream of the crop. So I guess in our world, uh, we don't have anything like to that level, but. Besides bragging rights, we do have that. <laughs> but there is a uh, a subset of collectors who are PSA collectors or PSA, the professional sports authenticators. They slab the cards in those those rigid plastics, uh, and they give you a grade. And some of the PSA guys, they have they're part of this PSA set registry, and you get awarded if you are the best. You have the best registry of a particular issue. So we have that. However, I'm it's a, a bit amazing how global. This is because stamp collecting is a global phenomenon. Uh, trading card is mostly an American, Canadian, North American phenomenon. It's just starting to reach the global, global stage. Um, I do. I had a kind of comical thought. I don't know why, but it's like the the. It has a very same similar circuit, like the, the dog show. Absolutely. Like the dog show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's Absolutely. the same. Yeah. I, I, I was talking. Have you guys seen the movie Best in Show? Yes. Okay, so I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who who's in the stamp hobby. And he said his dream is a movie about stamp shows like Best in Show, uh, sort of a, a, a loving uh, sort of mockumentary about the world because th- there are so many similarities to the to the dog show world. Um, you know, a lot of these hobbies, you know, you, there's a lot of the same same blood that you know comes from the same place. So I think that's a very apt analogy because it draws in people who wouldn't, who might not necessarily go to a show otherwise. You know, people have their own oh, that's circles. True. Yeah, and, right. If, you know, visiting the Bourse is nice. A lot of the auctions is nice, but you can do some of the bidding online now. But if they didn't have these exhibits to go to, if they didn't need to win these awards, it's bringing in people who 
have these kind of collections to the show now to just specifically exhibit, to specifically try and win these awards who might not have attended the show in the first place because they can they can do it via phone bid or it allows also for the museum traveling roadshow slash museum aspect. Mm -hmm. so yeah. It's a good it's a good way. So one of the things that collectibles in general struggle with, and I think all collectibles have this, is to have their niche group. So there's a core, mm -hmm. a very niche core group that love everything about stance or everything about trading cards. Then you get the periphery. So you're like the periphery is like, I don't quite get it. There's nothing really in it for me. And then when you have a museum aspect, like, oh okay, I'll go check it out. And all you need is, you know. If you take digital, for example, you need a two percent conversion rate. So for if a hundred people go and two people, two percent of people convert and turn into collectors, then you've won, right? Absolutely, you're growing the hobby. So yeah. Anyway, that's last... a... Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say the last thing I'll say about exhibiting too, just to tie it back to to sports really quick. Um, the American Circuit is called the World Series of Philately. So <laughs> oh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> there's about thirty some odd shows throughout America every year that are wsp qualifying shows and then every year there's the um uh the the champion of champions where the winners of all 30 of those shows go head to head so the way people sort of wow. you know figure out you know I'm, I'm gonna try and win in sarasota or seattle or portland because all you need to do is notch your victory at one of those shows to make it to the champion of champions uh, but i think that terminology world series is funny how they draw from um you know professional sports to right it adds to the um the pomp and circumstance of the whole thing <laughs> well that works because the world series and you just made you also mentioned a, a soccer reference or football reference the champions league so there's a champions league in football where mm -hmm. sorry soccer american now i'm forgetting which one to call it in now soccer. you're speaking michael's language by the way <laughs> so going down that 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 hallway of thought um, there's a lot of synergies in terms of like the, the trade-offs between the way we think of the uh, thing. Already in the first 18 minutes we've chatted, we've gone down many different tributaries of thought. So um, <laughs> this is awesome. And uh, what I want the we want the, the crowd who do watch us now and live and and after is we're not that different. We're all kind mm -hmm. of the same. We have Perfect. our own venue and our own like uh, vehicle to do the collection. But with all our quirks and little competitiveness and you know fires are all there. Anyway, sorry, um, I lost track of where we are with our questions. Yeah. You're you're next. Uh, um, the story. We're curious to know your story. Oh right, all right. Sorry. So I, when I get it, when I get you know, uh, guests are good. When I've forgotten the questions and <laughs> I'm like, so, all right. So I, I'll reset here. First of all, before we go there, I want to say hi to Dennis. Oh yes, yes. Hey Dennis, thanks for coming by. Dennis checks out all our shows regularly. Thank you for coming. And we have Name, who's Indigenous rookie card collector. So for Michael uh, and and Charles, he collects only rookie cards of NHL players of Indigenous uh, descent. Wow! So it's a, it's a, he's fairly well known for that. I love the specialization. I'm used to people just yeah. trying to complete a set. You have to get the yeah. whole top set or whatever. But the fact that you know, again, the the um, uh, black hockey players and the indigenous, I think that's fascinating that people find their uh, their own little niche. It's amazing. Yeah, and that's what we want to show. There's more than just the. It's the word I'm gonna look for. The pop culture aspect. There's other other not not so pop culture aspects of life mm -hmm. uh, with collecting. All right, so back to the question. Make sure I stay on track here. Um, so we're curious to know your story. As the two of you decided to collaborate and do a show, and you're, you're here today, and your show is quite popular, um, what led you to create your channel? How did you two meet? Tell us all about it. So we met 
Um, our, our meeting story, our origin story is kind of long-winded. There's a, there's a um, group within the larger organization in, in America called the American Philatelic Society. And there was a small uh, group within that led by a gentleman named Alex Hyman uh, called the Young Philatelic Leaders Fellowship. So we were both members of that fellowship. We applied and you, I think you believe, I believe you have to be under 28 years old and over 18. So mm-hmm. over 18, under 28, we both applied and we were one year after the other, I was 2013, he was 2014 and they send you to different shows. Um, so my first show was in Milwaukee. Charles's first show was in Hartford, Connecticut. And um, we kind of started Young people might not have the resources to go to stand yeah. shows or get to know the right people. So it's a great program they have where they yeah. foot the bill for all of your travel and make those introductions. And I know it's what kept. Oh, wait, they actually foot the bill. They do. Yes. They get, they, they yeah. get very wow. generous uh, sponsors who, um, you know, no. cover airfare and hotels and everything. Because again, I was, I was fresh out of college. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have mm-hmm. a job yet. No way would I have been able to travel across the country for a stamp show. And without yeah. that very formative experience, they probably wouldn't have kept me so interested in the hobby. So it, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful program that I, I can't speak highly enough of. That, that's impressive. So Ken, yeah. you should, we should ask our friends in the collecting world to pay for us to go places. <laughs> we should, we should, we definitely should. Anyway, that's uh, food for thought. Yes. Um, go ahead. Oh, go, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I was going to ask for your side as well. So go ahead. Um, yeah, so we didn't actually meet until um, 2018, right? 2017 in Monaco. The part of that initiative there, um, a man named uh, Patrick Masias, Masellus, Masellus, pays for some specific young philatelists as well to go attend a very prestigious stamp show in Monaco called Monaco Phil. So Charles and I actually met for the first time in Monaco in 2017 and um, kept in touch since then. And then when the pandemic hit, we kind of reached out to each other. And uh, No, and, my, my, and- Michael's being too humble. <laughs> I, was, I, I was in the car driving to look at a stamp collection, and I get a Facebook message from Mike. We'd met a couple of times. He'd come by my mm-hmm. office for lunch. We knew each other, and we're, and we're friendly with each other. But I get a Facebook message from Michael. Hey, can I give you a call? So I you know, send him my, my cell phone number as I'm driving. And he calls and he pitches this idea for a podcast. And I said, that sounds good to me. I didn't want to let on that I'd never actually listened to a podcast before. <laughs> I didn't really know what they were. I was like, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Because um, it's the pandemic. You're just looking for things to do. You're looking for ways to pass the time. Sure. I wasn't going into the office every day. So, uh, so again, my, it was not a, a joint idea. I, I want to be very clear. So it's Michael okay. and I'm just along for the ride. So please don't be so humble, uh, Michael. <laughs> I love that you admitted that you don't know, didn't know what a podcast was. That, that's no, I like... immediately, I, I immediately googled like, what? How do you listen to pod? I didn't realize it was like an Apple application. I'd never noticed the app before. Uh, so yeah, I very quickly briefed myself on podcasts, and then I wrote him back, and I was like, "Hey, I'm thinking more about this pod." And then I was like an expert on podcasts. That's I listened to like an hours worth, and I was like, I had all these ideas. But no, my, all credit goes to to Michael uh, for for the uh, for the idea. That's the advantage of texting. Could you be like, yeah, I know. What the hell is he talking about? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was like trying to impress him with like podcast knowledge. But um, but yes, that, that was how it started. It was, you know, we, um, uh, you know, I, I'd been going to shows. Uh, Michael, I, you think you were just starting to look to go to more yeah. shows. 
right as all of this broke out, which was unfortunate. Um, mm -hmm. And it just gave us a chance to connect with people we hadn't seen in a while. Um, you know, we have a lot, Michael and I have a lot of mutual friends in the hobby. And I think a lot of it was we just missed some of these people and thought, let's touch base with them. Um, but also to track down new people who maybe live on the other side of the planet or have a job where we don't really interact with them. Because mm. we didn't want it to be, and I, I think we both agreed on this early on, that we didn't want it to be just stamp collectors and just people that we were used to seeing at stamp shows. We right. wanted to, you know, attract a, a more diverse, um, you know, people who are sort of stamp adjacent. Um, oh, yes. yep. So we spoke to, um, you know, one of the, uh, the, the PR uh, spokesmen for the USPS. And we've spoken to college professors who use the mail in their teaching. You know, one of them uh, uses um, uh, the mail to teach American literature. How did mm. literature and mail interact? They're very sort of um, off, off beats, maybe not the right word, but, but interesting approaches to the hobby that Michael and I, you know, we sort of get blinders on. I think we're, we're so involved in the hobby on such a regular basis. And, and it was fun to get to hear all these differing viewpoints and perspectives, you know, people who you might not think are collectors or, you know, all sorts of different things. So that was sort of the genesis of it was let's just hop on zoom and talk to people when we can't go anywhere. That's, that's cool. And I love like the thought process behind it, like meeting people uh, since Kent and I started this show and to be on the drone on episode 31, I think. So yeah, 31. 31. We didn't know three quarters of the people that we, until we started reaching out. Like yeah. we wouldn't have known name. I, I knew of name, but not as well as we got closer with them because of the show. And I wouldn't have known Dennis who's watching right now and a few other people. Um, so we've gotten, we've expanded our knowledge base substantially. Right. And at the same time, we've gained a serious number of friends, which is also. Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And, and yeah. I was going to say, Michael and I go to a, a stamp show and it's fun to meet like the people who comment on YouTube and they come up to, yeah. you know, we, we interviewed, we actually interviewed a guy in San Francisco who had been commenting on all of our videos and we saw him and we were like, will you talk yeah. to him? Come on for it. So it, it's fun to have that sort of interaction. Um, and I'll also say uh, that, you know, again, I, I knew Michael, I liked Michael. We were friends, I would say, uh, but this has really brought us together as well. And it's been, um, you know, my, Michael and his wife, Kaylee, um, uh, have become, you know, two of my closest friends through this podcast. So that, that's been another fun element to it as well. I don't think Michael and I would have been forced to talk to each other as much as we have <laughs> Uh, if we weren't involved in a project right. like that, and that's been that's been a lot of fun it's yeah. actually my wife is kind of concerned because i get giddy with talking to all my collectible friends and my friends are all over the world and it's like what are you doing i'm gonna go talk to my buddy darcy out west i gotta go, I gotta go. It's like what is wrong with you and i tell her i'm your safest husband in the world i don't leave the house i just need a phone <laughs> and looking up cards and talking to my friends that's all i need um so when you started a show and channel, you, the two of you wanted to try and get guests for your show to kind of tell us, like, what did people feel like when you reached out and said you want to be our guest? Like, were they flattered? Were they unsure? Were they like, who are these two Cracker Jacks? What are these guys doing? Yeah, so we reached out to people we, we knew. We started with Alex, who kind of put us together. And then we reached out to people that we met before, and they were incredibly supportive. Um, we got nothing but uh, a ton of support from the people who didn't really understand what it was we were doing, didn't understand what we were trying to accomplish. Um, but but they, you know, we owe kind of everything to them because they were the ones that, that started it. And they were such interesting people that they got people kind of hooked on the idea as well. 
I'm sure you guys have experienced the same thing where once you have like, you know, 10, 20 episodes, it's really easy to write someone and say, here's what we do. We had those, those first couple of emails trying to, because Michael and I hadn't even really formulated what we wanted it to be. We were like, yeah, we're just going to talk yeah. for like 30 <laughs> minutes, an hour. We don't, we don't, however long the conversation goes. So um, yeah, th those first couple of people who, who joined us without knowing um, what we were doing, uh, that was, that was really, um, it, very touching in a way that mm -hmm. they were just willing to say yes to to us, even though we were making it up as we went along. So, and again, then once you get a couple under your belt, you sort of, um, I think get a bit more confidence and you have a body of work to show and it, uh, yeah. becomes less, less awkward to cold call people. Yeah. It's also, I have a whole new respect for journalists and researchers who do this professionally. It's mm -hmm. not easy to get up there and the first show, and we'll talk about this later, but the first couple of shows, I'm pretty sure I sound like a bumbling idiot trying to figure out fumbling over my questions and trying to figure out what was going on. But now I feel definitely more comfortable and, and definitely reaching out to people. And Kent, Kent does most of the reaching out, but um, it's easier, way easier now you have 31 chosen, right? And for you, I think it's 67? 67, 67. Yeah, we just yeah. celebrated our, our one-year anniversary a couple of weeks ago. So we've had a couple yeah. of uh, extra episodes mixed in. So yeah, we just we just celebrated a year uh, recently, which um, simultaneously it feels like we've been doing this for 10 years. <laughs> Wait till you are 10 years from now. And then you'll be like, yeah. you'll be like wow, I, I sound way different. Um, so the one thing that's fairly obvious is both of you are very young. Um, Kent and I are at that point where midlife crisis is, is either setting in or coming very soon or has passed us and we haven't seen it. Um, it's funny, it, in stamp collecting, you guys would be the next youngest after. Yeah, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> yeah and exactly. And formula in my beard. And it's funny because I watched one of your YouTube shows and I'm watching through and I'm like, there's a lot of older guys in that hobby. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's good to see younger people because all collectibles in general, forget trading cards or whatever it may be, in order for the hobbies, collective hobbies to grow, you need to bring in people who are younger to to enjoy it. So the fact that you two are both young, that helps uh, the game plan overall. So um, like I said, we mentioned you're young and it's a, you talk about stamp collecting as an older person's hobby. How do you use your, your medium to make sure you educate younger people to come in or get more younger people to come in to kind of grow the hobby from that, you know, the podcasting and your angle? I'll start with you, Charles. So I, I think that um I think that stamp collecting is is unique in a way because you know baseball cards are always going to be cool to kids kids are always going to love baseball cards um, coins you're always going to use every everyone can know what a coin is but with stamps I feel like for much of the hobby's history your early exposure to stamps was using them was licking them and sticking them on an envelope and that sort of um uh, you know gave people a familiarity with them from a very young age. So when it came time to collect something, it was natural because you'd been looking at stamps and tasting stamps and using stamps on a very regular basis. They're not, to most people, I would say they're not inherently as fun as a baseball card. When you get like a Mike Trout card, that's more fun than a stamp with the Statue of Liberty on it. So <laughs> I think that's one of the biggest problems facing the hobby right now is you don't have that initial exposure. People today don't know even what a stamp costs because now they're forever stamps and it changes all the time with Congress. So I, I think that that lack of early exposure is one of the biggest things we have to overcome. Um, but, you know, Michael and I have talked about this youth fellowship. We are huge uh, supporters of this program. We're actually uh, planning on uh, hopefully sponsoring a youth fellow next year. I think that programs like that, um, you know, a lot of kids are interested in collecting stuff. Um, you know, people are 
forever or you know whether whether you know hobbies are getting older or whatnot they're going to be born with that gene they're going to have a natural inclination to collect and i think it's really about um you know and then likewise there's always going to be people who have no interest in collecting you know there's people who you couldn't turn into a stamp collector or a card collector <laughs> no matter how much you try so i think it's about identifying sort of the high potential youths and providing them with the resources that they need um, to be able to fully explore the hobby. So, so for, you know, um, I, I think that, you know, um, a lot of teachers try to incorporate stamps into their lesson plans, um, or at a stamp show, they'll have a, like Michael said, a youth corner where people, you know, kids can fill a bucket with stamps and take it home. Um, but I, I think the more important thing, rather than just casting a wide net and trying to turn everyone into a stamp collector, what Michael and I are trying to do whenever we meet a young person who shows that, you know, the, the spark has to be there naturally. And it's up to the hobby to provide the kindling to allow it to, mm. but I don't, I'm not sure you yeah. can create a stamp collector in a, in a test tube necessarily. There has to be some uh, natural inclination. So um, again, that's, that's where Michael and I sort of come in and uh, yeah, hopefully people see us and realize that it's not just a bunch of, bunch of old guys. And you know, you can, you can be young and successful and have a great time in the hobby uh, no matter what age or uh, you know, gender or, or whatnot, you know, it, it you know, um, Stamp collecting has a reputation, I would say, um, that's that's a bit uh, unfortunate. That that it's an old, stodgy, um, you know, not a not a not a cool hobby by any means. Um, you know, when I tell people what I do for a living, I get laughs more often than not. And I, you know, I, I I've embraced that. I, I I totally get that. But um, I hope Michael and I can can sort of change that perception a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So go ahead, Michael. Give your your perspective. No, I mean, that, that raises some incredible points. I mean, thinking some of the greatest philatelists that, that we know came into the hobby specifically because they received mail that they thought was interesting. Not the mail itself, but, but we, Wade Soddy, someone we interviewed very early on, told us that he was brought into the hobby specifically because he received, kept receiving envelopes with the Liberty series on it. So, which was a series of stamps in the 1950s and 60s that's very popular amongst collectors. Yeah. So that that's what brought him into the hobby, and now he's one of the most prominent, successful professional philatelists of you know of of our time. It's weird to say, but uh, but he is, and that's what brought him in. And then then you see countries like Iceland who get rid of stamps entirely. So what you think of they're not, they're not issuing stamps anymore. So how is that, that medium for bringing in new collectors in Iceland is completely out the window. Yeah. I don't know if, I, I don't, I don't know how big this news story was outside of the stamp world, but Iceland yeah. stopped issuing new postage stamps. Iceland yeah. said we're losing money on stamps. Everything's going to be, you know, printed meters and um, like the Pitney Bowes meters and everything. Uh, so mm -hmm. Iceland is a stamp free country these days. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's it's really funny. weird. Okay. It sounds it sounds kind of funny about stamp free world. I get I get what you're saying. <laughs> um but there's a couple of things you you both touched on. So one in uh so not only so a lot of people focus on kind of the wrong thing. Like we need to use in the hobby, you need to use in the hobby, but you need to the desire needs to be there. There needs to be a kind of understanding what the mentality of a collector. A collecting mentality is a bit of a OCD, right? You have to have a little bit of that. And you you push it into the direction of either stamp collecting or trading cards. Um, the other thing that we try to do on this show is show, you know, there are a fairly a lot of prominent women who collect trading mm -hmm. cards. So it's not just a men's that uh, right. job to collect cards. It's 
and our job as men is to kind of show that it isn't just all men. There's women in this hobby too. They deserve equal treatment and respect. And you guys are doing that from a youth perspective and showing, you know, different diversities in, in that point of view, right? So an inclusive nature. So you have that idea. We have that idea. And collectively, pardon the pun, we'll do that together as a group as we con continue to do what we do best on podcasts and whatnot. Um, I'm glad to hear you guys talk about that because that's important. I think a lot of people look at, like, I just want to make a quick buck and get out. But you got to have more people spending those quick bucks yeah. to keep it alive, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah um, again, stamp collecting has this image of being, not going to lie, a bunch of old white guys at a stamp show. And, uh, and I, I hope that our, our guests have um, done some small part to disprove that that uh, mentality. And they yeah. will. You just need to, the, the advent of, I'm going to call it a, a positive benefit of COVID, it, it forced us all to go online and expand the horizons and see the world for what it is and who it can be. So, you know, we wouldn't have met people. We wouldn't have, met, wouldn't have been able to impart our nature on people. People, These videos are, for, are forever. They're always going to yeah. live on YouTube, right? Even long after we're gone, YouTube's still going to be there, and they're going to find this video. Uh, whenever you have children or you get married, your kids are going to be like, oh, what did daddy do? Oh, let's go tell He's on YouTube. Let's check this out, right? <laughs> it's like a ancestry.ca kind of thing. You know, it's like a... Um, you get to see your legacy and you do an important service for your, your hobby. So I thank you for that. We, we, no, we're, 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 we're yeah, having fun. You. We're trying to give back. We've had so many people who are generous to us, who have supported us. Yeah. You know, when my, my first stamp show, I, I thought I knew a lot more than I did. Um, and I, I sort of went in, you know, thinking, uh, and, and the people who took time and Michael will, will tell you the same thing. The people who took, you spent the time with us and sat down with us and explained things, even though we were, nothing really um you know we we've had a lot of very generous people impact our lives and if we can provide a similar role to just a couple of people everything we we do is worth it yeah awesome. exactly so go ahead Kent. i just realized we're at 37 minutes we haven't even gotten through one tenth of our questions so this is how good a, a good conversation goes so go ahead kent so so gentlemen comparatively speaking if you had to compare episode number one to the very first uh, from the very first to the latest episode, which is number 67. How do you both feel after the completion of episode number one? And what have you both learned along the way to your latest episode? Michael? I mean, very feeling very different. I remember specifically after episode one thinking that that was pretty good. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, 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 I thought, yeah, we nailed it. <laughs> In my mind, it sounded just like the podcasts that I was listening to. Yeah. Like yeah. NPR <laughs> podcast. I was like, that's what Michael and I just did. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, I, I think we've really learned a lot about the medium. We've incorporated mm -hmm. more show and tell. You know, people will share their screen and um, give us a peek into their collection or their jobs. I, I think we've really uh, – and, and the other thing that we've been able to do um, – is we've done episodes where we're in person, um, yeah. which is as much fun as it is to hop on Zoom with someone. Um, you know, I've gone up to Michael's office and he came down to New York and we've had some great experiences and at stamp shows. Um, and I think that's one way that it's grown as well. Um, you know, we were sort of, because of COVID, we were locked into a routine. Right. Log on, mm -hmm. You talk to someone, we record a little intro and outro. Um, I want to give out a shout out to Michael's sister, Claire, uh, who does all of the editing and makes oh. episodes 
sound a lot better than they have any business sounding. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I think that we've really um, figured out how to um, uh, utilize the podcast medium in a much better way, where it's mm -hmm. not just log on, log off. It's um, I, don't know, yeah. I, I think we're trying to um, just mix things up a little bit. When we started with episode one, we really had no plans to do any in-person go to shows, right. view stamps, view collections, break down collections, interview people in person. We we didn't have any plans for that. We just thought, yeah, we'll log on to Zoom. We'll do this. And we didn't know what we knew we wanted to do something, but we didn't really have a you know long term goal. And now I think we really do. We we have, you know, we're planning episodes out for November, December, where we're visiting people at their actual houses. We're talking about their collections. It's it's um yeah, it's the feeling is a lot different from episode one to, epi to episode sixty-seven to to now, where we're at a stamp show talking to actual collectors, just walking around with a mic. It feels a lot different than uh, than yeah, my list of questions that I started off with. To be quite honest, and I'll, I tell clients this all the time, I wish I could burn episode one because I don't think it sounded good at all. I don't, I don't think I've actually gone back and listened to episode one since we did it. <laughs> I, I have. I've gone back, and it's like a memory. Like, don't do this. Don't ever do that. For, for me, it is still that perfect piece of podcasting that I yeah. was, and it'll always mm -hmm. be that way in my brain. <laughs> yeah, because our guest was was someone we, we hold so near and dear to ourselves. So, And he he's an incredible speaker. And he, he, you know, he just, he nailed it. And so we didn't even need to be there. Awesome. Yeah. Our first guest was a, a very prominent uh, figure in our trading card hobby. His name is Billy Celio. He did us a huge favor. He didn't have to. Um, he helped us out and was our first guest. Poor guy sat through two and a half hours of us asking questions. <laughs> it was, no, it was like three and a half hours. It's yeah, it was, it was about, it's a three and a half hours and it was about three hours too long. Um, <laughs> It's like so we've learned since then that we need to keep it to about an hour and a bit hour and a half max because mm -hmm. after about an hour and a half your brain just starts to melt it's just like we just can't keep it together um sorry can't go ahead buddy no worries no worries um so me and i we particularly love this quote that you often quote michael and it's by dr shell uh gans about getting new people in the hobby and her quote was if we want to bring in more philatelists we have to stop talking to only collectors what is it about this simply a powerful sentence that resonate, resonates with the both of you? So with me, it was the, the context meant a lot because at the, at the moment when she said it, she was talking about building exhibits for the Smithsonian National Postal Museum. So oh, wow. she was talking about, because that's what, uh, she used to be curator of the Smithsonian National Postal Museum. So she was talking about building exhibits that were tailored not only to collectors, but to people walking in off the street to try and bring them in and show them that postal history can be interesting, stamps can be interesting, but that you can learn history through stamps. So it mm. it meant a lot to me as a quote specifically because she was talking about, we need to, it, it's about exposure. It's not just about, we need to target these people and bring them into the hobby, grab them in by the collar and just, you know, show them, hey, collect stamps. It's, it's you know, showing people that, it's interesting. And then the people who have that collecting gene, like, like Charles had mentioned, will get hooked. So it was, you, you need to just stop advertising to only people who already collect this material and show the people who don't 
that there's things that they may be interested in that they haven't experienced yet. And, and a lot of people will collect things just related to their profession or related mm -hmm. to the town where they were born. And yeah, you don't have to be a stamp collector in sort of the traditional yeah. sense of it. I think, um, you know, Cheryl's spot on about that because you know, a lot of you just think it's um, you, you lick a little hinge and stick it on the back of the stamp and then you put right. the stamp in your album and you just try and fill in every gap. And, and that's that. And that's such a small segment of stamp collecting. Um, and, and, you know, Michael mentioned Cheryl uh, worked for the National Postal Museum. They do great things. They've got an exhibit mm -hmm. opening up, I want to say early next year, April or so. It's about um, baseball and stamp collecting. Oh, They've got items on loan from the Museum of American History. They've got items on loan from Cooperstown. And it's sort of telling the intertwined stories of baseball and stamps and how they've intersected throughout the years. And um, that that's how you interest people. You don't, you know, stick a, a stamp album in their hands and force them to fill in all the gaps. You, so you almost have to, I hate using the word trick, but you have to uh, get people to be stamp collectors without, you know, um, uh, without, without them knowing the image of stamp collecting is, is very isolated and, and boring to an extent. Um, but there's so many other ways to go about the hobby. And I think that's what, um, that's what Cheryl through her career and her various roles has done better mm -hmm. than just about anyone. It's like uh, show me I'm stamp collecting without showing me I'm stamp collecting. It's like that TikTok. One hundred percent. Yes. Uh, even my, my mother never collected stamps in her life, and she she went to a couple of shows with me, and she started mm -hmm. collecting cats on stamps, just domestic. Oh, really? On. And now she's got hundreds of stamps, and and you know I go to a stamp show, and she's like, hey, can you track down these stamps from Poland that have cats on them? And she's getting into it doesn't necessarily care about stamps per se but she loves you know some of them are, are silly and and some of them are really awkward photos of cats and some of them are just beautiful engravings of cats and she can appreciate it because of her love of cats it has nothing to do with the fact that they're stamps really and i think that's a really important way of getting people involved yeah so topical collecting like that cats on stamps is a massive part of of philately that they they have societies not only to embrace all topical collecting but specifical the cats on stamp society uh, things like that and they have exhibits as well specific exhibits for topical collecting and it's just it's it's massive in the hobby it's a huge demographic so one huh. thing i will say is so the the language that you're using to describe your hobby it's uh very i was sort of intellectual Right, so you're using uh, topicals and language like that. That's something that's a bit different than our subculture. Our our subculture is or hobby culture is riddled in idioms and things that people don't understand unless you're in the hobby. So, like when you talk about you talk, you're very elegant in how you explain some of the things, and it does sound elegant. For example, you're going to Monaco, like to go to a show. <laughs> like we're going to some backwoods town flea market. Oh, trust me, there's plenty of that in stamps too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> But it's it's interesting to hear just the dichotomy of language used. So that's also I, I'm, I'm I I play off and learn stuff like that as well. Um, mind you, in every one of our hobbies, there's the the nice guys, the sleaze bags, and, and everyone else. We we deal with those as well. But I appreciate the how you guys are explaining it. So I want to thank you for that. Again, I lost talk. Lost talk. Sorry, I lost track. <laughs> oh, it's uh, I got one more to go before I turn it over to you, mate. 
So on, on your latest, well, second latest episode entitled Tiffany Talk, uh, I'm going to quote a few things. So Charles, you mentioned thinking outside the box, which happens to be the motto of our show. And Michael, you mentioned being inclusive, building a sense of community and sharing people's stories. These are very important taglines for our show as well. For yourselves, what's the importance of thinking outside the box, being inclusive, building a sense of community and sharing people's stories mean for you and your show? So in, in, I'll, I'll let you take the inclusivity, Michael. I'll take thinking outside the box yeah. if that works. But for, for me, Perfect. you know, stamp collecting, one of the things that drew me to the hobby um, is the history and this great legacy of, uh, uh, of the, you know, the hobby's been around since the 1850s, really. Since there were stamps, there have been people collecting them. So on the one hand, I do love all of that um, sort of baggage that comes with the hobby. Um, you know, the, my, my company that I, that I work for was founded in 1940. I love that. I love being able to put established 1940 on my letterhead and whatnot. Um, but I feel like that's simultaneously a blessing and a curse. So mm -hmm. on the one hand, it's great that our hobby is steeped in tradition. You talk about the language. It, it is, um, you know, it was always called the king of hobbies and the hobby of kings. And I think there's there's a lot of good that comes out of that. Um, I feel like that can also be just as alienating and uh, uh, sort of um, restrictive. Um, because if we just keep doing things the way they've been done, you know, there's a lot of things that may have worked at a stamp show in 1920, uh, that don't work at a stamp show in 2020. Um, and if we, right. keep, and if, if we keep, you know, ju just relying on the tradition and the history and the heritage of the hobby, um, I don't think it'll continue to survive in a 21st century world. So, um, you know, Michael and I, um, you know, I, I don't think it's that revolutionary to do a podcast, but, um, it, it, it sort of is in the stamp world. This isn't, you know, there, there's other great people making YouTube videos or making TikToks or Instagrams. And I do love to see more and more of that. Like every month, I feel like we meet someone new just mm -hmm. online. Um, but for me, that's what thinking outside the box is about. And to a lot of people, the, the catch all solution is just, oh, I'll make a Facebook page for your stamp club, for your stamp. Oh, club. sure. Right. Right. Just make a Facebook page. And I, I, you know, um, Michael and I, uh, at least myself, I don't really remember the world before Facebook that well. Um, and I know that it, it's not just this one size fits all solution that you can make a Facebook page. So I, I hope that by, you know, do we, you know, I, I, at times when Michael and I are running around a stamp show, I kind of feel like part investigative journalist, part TV host, part, all sorts of things. And I think that, you know, we're just sort of throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks and seeing what people respond to. Michael and I did an episode last year where we just gave people a tour of our respective offices. Mm -hmm. um, sort of ran around filming, hey, here's where I work. And I didn't really understand why we were doing that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think my lead suggested <laughs> And I was like, I, yes. this, this isn't good content. And I think we've gotten more <laughs> comments about that episode than anything else we've done. And the ones that I thought should have been huge. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked that, but it wasn't the best. So I, I, <laughs> I think that's um, that, that's how we're trying to think outside the box. Again, we want to honor the, the history of the hobby. And that is a huge right. And And I love following in the footsteps of a lot of great people. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, we were just trying to, figure out new ways to draw people in or make people feel more involved. And, and that's really what it means to me. Hmm. Michael. Sorry, go ahead, Michael. You first. Yeah. That, that inclusivity is, is massive because without that, I wouldn't have met Charles. I wouldn't be where I am today. It, it's I, I went to my first stamp show when I was 21 years old, I think. And it was just one of those Borscht shows. 
and I didn't really know what I was doing. It was really, you know, as a fish out of water. And I, I sat down at a booth and I asked for a book to look at some stamps and I didn't really have an intention of buying them. I just wanted to talk to people to connect because my father and I have an online business. So we would only sell material online. We didn't go to shows or we didn't have customers come in. So I wanted to connect with people and a Bourse show when you're not intending to buy anything isn't really the place to do that. Uh, that you go there to buy. So um, when I finally applied to the YPLF and I they sent me to the Milwaukee show and I sat down with some of the people that they introduced me to. It it just it really struck me that there's there's people who want other people in the hobby and not just for a monetary reason, not because they're trying to sell you something, but because they want to share their collections or they want to see your collection or they want to see what you can do in the future if you become interested in X, Y, and Z. Or if you start doing this, you become a member of this organization within the hobby. They want to see you grow within it. So without that kind of camaraderie in the beginning, I wouldn't have continued in the capacity that I've continued with in the hobby it would have been it would have looked a lot different for me particularly and i want to just be able to share that with people because without that i'd still be sitting behind a computer selling things to people on ebay just the way we do now with you know our 15 employees we've got a large building and and we just wouldn't we don't have a storefront we wouldn't have met anyone but now we're going to shows we're meeting people we're interviewing people on this podcast and it's it's a much different experience and I just want to make sure that we don't leave any philatelist behind. We don't want people to have an experience where they kind of feel that they can't be involved in the hobby in the same way. Right. You're also you're also there's one thing, so I was reading a quote and it and I'm gonna kind of segue it into our thinking, right? So I was talking to a couple mm -hmm. of parents and like they're saying younger parents the reason why their kids do a little bit better in some sense is they're letting them take risks. But older mm. parents, they're more cautious, right? They've been around, they know what the monster bruise is, so they don't take as many risks with their children. So the fact that you're younger and you're taking risks to kind of go out beyond the, what you're thinking is kind of proof in the pudding of that thought process. Had you been, I can tell you right now, me being 47 compared to 37 compared to 27 compared to 17, I was like 17 year old me would be would, would have done this in a heartbeat, right? Mm -hmm. 47 year old me was like, it took me a year before I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to do this. I wasn't, I wasn't sure I was qualified enough to take the risk, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact you have to take a you have to take a risk, and there's a very famous uh talk show host, Steve Harvey, the family feud. He he had a there's a YouTube uh, clip of him that went viral, which is he was telling people like, until you jump. And you don't take a risk. You have to jump. If you don't jump and fall and bump and bruise yourself, you'll never know. But you have to jump. So the fact that you're doing that, I think Kent and I are, are trying, even though age is nothing but a number, but we're trying mm -hmm. something different. If you have to, you have to try. So mm -hmm. I think I like the fact that you guys are thinking that. So kudos to you for doing that. Thanks. Um, so stamps these days especially in north america have evolved from actually someone asked a question about this and it's relative to this so mastodamus hold your horses a second um to get somewhat of an answer and the answer is no but anyways um 
Stamps these days in North America evolved from licking to self-adhesive to postal general stamps, stamp stamps. So just so you're aware, these are little stickers they could peel off and and, and stick to um, um, envelope, which for someone like me who used to do eBay is a revolutionary thing because licking stamps sucks. Um, <laughs> you do that many packages. So I want to just talk to you about, you know, how the evolution of that came to be, how did it affect your stamp collecting in general, and just your general thoughts on that 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 uh, evolution and innovation. Yeah, so so for much of their histories, um, you'd lick a stamp. It had a, a water-activated gum on the back, which was very convenient for stamp collectors because the same water that activated the gum when you licked it and stuck it, um, you could just soak it in, you know, room, lukewarm water, uh, warm water, uh, drop a dish soap, you put the stamp while it's still on the envelope in there, and it just lifts right off. It just floats right off, and you can have that stamp. Um, the introduction of um, uh, of self-adhesive stamps was very convenient from a shipping standpoint, absolutely. Um, my office manager uh, uh, laments whenever we, you know, a lot of stamp dealers still cover the outside of their packages in old stamps. And whenever I suggest that we do this, um, Allison's not thrilled. She'd stamp <laughs> on it. Um, but but, but it, it did hurt the hobby in the sense that it is much harder to get a self-adhesive stamp off. The water right. no longer uh, deactivates the gum. So um, you know, when I was starting to collect, there's all sorts of like orange oil, um, things you can buy at Home Depot that um, probably shouldn't be inhaling. Um, that you can use to... Um, uh, to, to get the adhesive off, but even then it, it's, um, uh, you know, you're still left with the, the stickiness on the back of the stamp. So a lot of people nowadays will just cut it, uh, you know, uh, be careful not to trim the perforations yeah. off, just leave it on the paper that it's on because it's easier than trying to get it off. So yeah, the, the, the switch from uh, uh, water activated to self-adhesive, um, I get it from a practicality standpoint, but I still sort of mourn it from a collector standpoint. Well, there's also Amazon, and so there's a lot less people sending mail, so that's a proven thing. But there's a lot more people sending packages, but those are metered mostly, like Amazon, yeah. whatnot. Exactly, right? exactly. You, you know, you get you got a package from a stamp dealer or collector when a box will just be plastered in like yes. sheets of postage stamps. So, <laughs> well, I know um, yeah, there's I, still some people keeping it alive. I know when I buy stuff on eBay and their trading cards, there are stamps that this guy. I know this guy used a glue stick. He's peeled them off other envelopes that haven't been canceled, and he's picking them to the package. And I can tell because I know the Canadian stamps, and I can see they're like the universal ones they can use. They have no price on it. It's just like a, a the forever ones. Is like, yes, but they changed, they changed the artwork, and I'm like that artwork was from like five years ago. This guy clearly saved all of his envelopes. <laughs> and it, you know, put them over a, a steaming kettle, and then glue stick them to the, the boxes. Um, it's funny because I do remember as a kid, like my parents, who would send out Christmas cards. And I got that job of licking the stamp. I hated that job. And then I remember <laughs> another comical. So I hated that. My dad used to laugh at me because, like, hey, you got to go through the ritual. Um, I did. He is a kid. The other one is, and I still have this thought in my head, and it's almost, it's kind of disgusting, but it still makes me laugh to this day. That we had this old lady that used to work at the post office when I was growing up. Uh, they had the rollerball with the the water, and this yep. water had been in there for God yeah. knows how long. Right? <laughs> and you could tell because it was like not looking right. And she's just like, and I'm like, oh my God, do not put that in your mouth. Do not put that in your mouth. <laughs> um, 
And I don't know why she did that, even though she used the water off the rollerball, right? She's like, water oh, off the rollerball, stick it, and then on the envelope. And I'm like, I am not touching that thing with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> uh, uh, so all kinds of thoughts go through my head of that. So I'm kind of thankful for stickers for that point of view. Um, Michael, I'll give you a chance to chime in. No, I mean, the Charles answered that perfectly. The the uh, the only thing that I'd, I'd mention on top of that is that when you had stamps in the past before self-adhesive, mm -hmm. the, the hinging, the gum on the back really mattered. So if someone had hinged the stamp previously, it really would so it, reduce I, the value of the stamp. I don't want then, to interrupt, but, but this is probably a foreign concept to card collectors. A hinge yeah. is a little piece of um, sort of gummed paper. So you didn't want Wax to paper, this stamp. Yeah. yeah, you didn't want to lick the stamp oh, in okay. your album. So you'd use a yeah. little folded piece of paper that had gum on one side. So you would attach one side of it to the stamp and the other side of it to your stamp album, which allowed yeah. it to sort of float freely. Looked like a door hinge. Paper. Exactly. Oh, okay. It was still yeah. attached, but that marred the gum on the back of the stamp. So mm -hmm. stamps that escaped that fate and have the gum perfect as it yeah. was at the post office the day it was issued are more valuable than stamps where the gum on the back has been altered or uh, disturbed in any way. I find that interesting though, because back in the day, weren't they telling you to use the hinge? Yes. Yes. Which, which is why the value of the never hinge stamps has gone up so significantly mm -hmm. is they were never supposed to survive in this format. They were never, you know, yeah. huh. this was the way you collected stamps. You stuck the hinge on the right. Back. So, so um, yeah, they they inadvertently created a whole new class of rarities. Um, that is really interesting. That is really yeah. interesting. But with self adhesives, that's completely right. Not even a moot point. Not even a thing. Yeah. Huh. Sorry, I have a stamp book. I was actually going to look at what you're talking about. Now I know what you mean. Okay. Cool. Um. So. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, for most of us that collect trading cards, we have uh, issues. Well, it's a bit of a sore, sore topic right now because of the advent of digital and the speed that transactions happen online. A lot of these pricing catalogs that we used to refer to are no longer valid, right? When they mm -hmm. print the issue, literally the day they printed, if eBay spiked, then the, the values in the book were no good. Um, but I wanted to kind of ask, because I know in stamps, there's Scott's catalog and various other uh, resources to look up values of stamps. So can you talk about you know, where would someone go to look up uh, information about stamps, their their value, and uh, is eBay completed auction the way to do it, or should we use online references? Talk about that. So, so Michael. Scott is the kind of, is the standard for, for American philatelists. They, they have a U.S. Specialized, they have a Classics that does 1840, 1940, or they have massive six uh, volume, but now that's, you know, part one, A and B, part two, A and B. So I think it's 12 volume now. So, so to get all of the Scott catalogs for all yeah. of the world, 1840 to present day, you're looking at about 14 different books. Oh, yeah. wow. Oh, wow. Like, like, and like kind of phone book size books, too. Yeah, yeah. And, do and they, they, do they, they issue them. Do they? Sorry, did they update this every year? Every year. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Every year they issue new ones. Um, so those are kind of they have price points in there where it all the stamps are priced at very fine condition, uh, no, extremely fine condition. XF is catalog is is XF, and then they kind of give you you go a percentage down off of that. So 
people, I mean, some people are leaning more towards using online resources, but Scott has, is the standard. If someone has a price in the title on an uh, auction catalog, on an online auction, it's, it's either a Scott catalog number and Scott catalog price, or if they're mentioned specifically a different catalog, like uh, Scanley Gibbons, Bale, Yvert, um, uh, Michelle, things like that, they'll have different prices for specialized stamps. So, yeah, so, so th those catalogs are all sort of specific to a country. So in the yeah. U.S., it's Scott. In Great mm -hmm. Britain, it's Stanley Gibbons. In uh, France, it's um, Iver or um, Iver, uh, yeah. Uh, blanking on the other one. Uh, in, in Germany, it's Michel. So, so every country has its own catalog. But the other confusing thing is that whatever the Scott catalog lists is okay. not is is more often than not um, not what you're going to be able to get for your stamp. So again, this, oh. is, this assumes a certain condition. This assumes, um, you know, sort of the perfect store no or sale. Yeah. Um, where, whereas, you know, uh, certain countries that are very hot these days, such as People's Republic of China, um, you can sell something for the full Scott catalog value. Other countries like France or Canada, maybe you're lucky to get five to ten to fifteen percent of the catalog value. And it varies mm -hmm. from country to country, and it varies, you know, depending on market trends. So I would say that eBay completed listings is probably the safest bet if you want the real market value of a stamp. Oh, funny um, that. Funny and, that. Yeah. I mean, Scott is very useful for identifying them, but the values can be a bit misleading. We have people who call us, um, and they'll say, I've got a stamp that catalogs $200, and I have to explain to them that it's got a corner ripped off of it, and it has uh, no thumb, and it's got all these things that... You, you sort of start with the best case scenario and then work your way down from there. Is um, it, so you ahead. guys know how you have um, the PW on eBay's completed listings. You guys have PWCC now that has a website yeah. where you can search all of eBay's completed listings for all of uh, trading cards. Right. We kind of ourselves developed a similar thing called stamp market index, where we have all of eBay's completed listings for the past 14 years for stamps. So oh, wow. it's not as um, PWCCs has a lot more um, involved. It's it's very well built out. Um, there's a there's a lot to it. I've seen with graphs and everything like that. Ours is is simply you want you want to find something. Type in the title and we'll find it for you by the year. We'll show the photo. We'll show the price. So I I utilize that a lot. Um, I, of course, I'm biased because we built it, but um, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I find that very helpful. But Scott is definitely when pricing material. Scott kind of is the Scott catalog value is what you put in. That's the standard. So you you said so. One question I want to ask you and remind me about the app. Or sorry, your your stock market. Sorry, stamp market, market, stamp index. market index. Yeah, and is that an app app that you can download on your phone? It's not, it's just the, um, a website. So okay. stampmarketindex.com, much like the PWCC market. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I will check that out and definitely make sure I look at that. The other thing I wanted to ask you is now, um, I had made a joke earlier about the fact that some of our card shows are in flea markets and stuff like that, but there are, because of COVID and the advent of uh, very influential businessmen who come in and realize sports card is a, is a good asset, a collectible asset. So we've got more influential people in the hobby, people who have money, well-heeled clients, 
Um, so they'll spend the money to to buy certain things. So the question I have for you is, when you mentioned that you know in Asia some people pay full market rate versus North America they won't, is it because the demographic that they're appealing to is well healed, or is it the fact that they can't get those issues in those certain countries and they're less less uh, willing to be um, finicky on the price? Like, what is it be noticed from that point of view? I think if you asked. 10 people, you'd probably get 10 different answers to that question. Yeah. I, I, I think one big thing about the Asian market is um, it, it's, I, I would say the Asian market is sort of where the American market was a couple of decades ago. Okay. So there was not a big stamp collecting community for a very long time. Um, you know, the oldest American auction houses go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s. The oldest auction house in Hong Kong is actually a sister company of ours, and they weren't founded until 1970. So I think oh. it, it's a much more modern than what, you know, and, and Great Britain goes back even further than the U.S. So I think there's a lot more passion and enthusiasm and excitement and hence higher prices um, because it's still uh, much more of a, a fresh phenomenon. I, I feel mm -hmm. like they're not as um, uh, jaded is not the right word, but but um, it, it still feels new to them. So I think that generates a lot of the high prices that it hasn't been done before. Hmm. Jaded is a good way to say things because we all know those collectors. Like they think the world is is falling apart, and there's a nuclear bomb going to hit Earth, and stamps will disappear, and you know, you know, yeah. you know. And, and as soon as they come up with an innovation and like a 3D print stamp, they'll be like, "That's it, 2D's dead," like something <laughs> like that, right? Um, so I say quickly hi to some people. So Mastodamus, I answered your question. I think this is Richie. Richie, it's Richie. Is, it is Richie. Yes, it's Richie. Richie's our, uh, he's a collector from New York. They were a good friend of ours. Uh, Kent has a fan, so I'm going to say, hey, Kent. Um, so Name has made a comment here. When I was a kid, before the days of the nine-slot pages came into my life, uh, the nine-slot pocket pages for cards, we would use mm -hmm. photo albums with the adhesive to hold our cards. Um, the photo album pages had adhesive on them. Is that similar well, to the stamp? Yeah, so so when I saw this comment, I was going to say, we still see stamp albums that are yeah. on those horrible old photo albums where they have like really the, wow the mylar the <laughs> yeah feel bad. yeah you literally just stick the which which to a stamp that just destroyed destroyed it yeah. um there's really yeah. nothing you can do to salvage a stamp like that but yeah we still see people who collected stamps that same way they would just stick them straight to the adhesive photo album charles and michael this might be a dumb question so if, if it's if the stamp is stuck on one of those old photo albums you can't even soak that off you can um, sometimes like, the adhesives that were used would uh, yeah. discolor the stamp. Oh, discolor! Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So, so, and, and if you want, and if you soak it, you're also um, inherently destroying the gum. Um, uh, a lot right. of times, what we will try to do um, is you can actually put them in the freezer, and sometimes that. that's enough yeah. to loosen the adhesion. Mm. Yeah, so we have. We have a lot of old wives' tales in terms of how to fix things. Like people are like, hey, if you turn upside down and you put it on Mars, it'll be this condition. <laughs> and and it, it also depends on is the stamp even worth saving? There's a lot. Yeah, of true. That's true. Yeah. Your loss. Yeah, it's not salvage. But but you know, we get rare stamps sometimes where it's like performing CPR to get it off a, an album page. Or yeah. Something. Yeah. Well, the good news, the, the interesting thing you said, which I learned, which is something I didn't know and can't mention this as well. The art of a stamp is that you have to destroy it to use it, and then you have to stop from being destroyed further to have the value in it. So it's like mm -hmm. it's like you can't have your cake and eat it too. It's almost like a yeah, <laughs> you know, a way of looking at it. Um, yeah, 
another similarity you have with uh, collecting is you will now that you, Charles, you're more into the collectible side of things. And Michael, you have a company that does a lot of eBay transactions. So what is it like to, to, how do you come across collections and how do you, how you evaluate them? And what are some of the easy, actually, this is not a fair question because I get asked this as well. How would you tell someone whether a collection is worth worth something or not? And do you get a lot of junk collections? And like, how do you deal with all that? So, uh, I work. I, I, <laughs> do you want me to? I, okay. I, 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 this is my least favorite part of the business is like letting people down. Um, no, so mm -hmm. I, 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 I work for an auction house. Um, so we we get called all the time. Um, there's very few auction houses left in New York City. New York used to be sort of the center of the stamp universe, and um, now it's it's uh, spread out all over the country and all over the world. Um, but, you know, when people in New York City and across the U.S. will call us. I've got my father's stamp collection. He passed away or my husband's stamp collection. He passed away. And, um, you know, we, we usually try to, you know, we ask for pictures is usually the first line of defense. People think they have to photograph every single stamp in the collection. They don't. Um, you can sort of get inside of a collector's brain. I feel just by seeing a couple of cursory photos, you can tell. Um, you know, whether something is uh, worthwhile or not. Um, we usually ask where they were purchasing stamps. If they were buying from a well-known dealer or an auction house, that's a lot different than if they were just clipping stamps off of envelopes that came in the mail. Um, and and the, the thing that I, I hate to have to convey to people, but I have to do it on a daily basis effectively, <laughs> is that um, a lot of times if you didn't put money into your stamp collection, it's very difficult to get money out of your stamp collection. So if all you did was go to the post office and buy a mint sheet of stamps, you know, three cents, the whole sheet cost a buck 50, you're not going to get much more than a buck 50 out of that collection. Whereas if you were going to auction and spending a hundred or a thousand dollars on a stamp, that's a stamp that will most likely have held its value. So, you know, everyone wants to find that diamond in the rough and everyone wants to get rich quick, uh, buy something at a thrift store and, and flip it for a lot of money. But the, the sad reality is that, again, unless you um, were, were actively putting money into your collection, odds are uh, it can be great to inspire a new generation of collectors. Maybe, you know, we often tell people donate it to a YMCA or a Boys and Girls Club or something like that because it might spark that passion inside of somebody else. Um, but, but I, you know, unfortunately, the vast majority of collections that we take a look at are, um, uh, are, are, are not saleable but do have sentimental and historical interest, I would say. Mm. You know, no, no, yeah. no stamp collection is worthless. It right. just depends on what your value of, if, if all you're looking for is money, then yeah, there's plenty of stamp collections that are worthless. But if you can appreciate the art and the history and the love, that, you know, the labor that somebody put into a collection, then everything is, is valuable in its own way. So one thing I've learned is uh, if I see a collection and it's like, I can tell right away from the color of the card. I'm like, oh no, it's going to be full of this '90s stuff, um, the junk wax era. We call it junk wax era. But I try to err on the side of, oh, this was really fun. Remember when so and so did this? And then you know, you, it lessens the the hurt. So I, I've used that. Yeah, 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 you have to come up with these little stories. <laughs> hey, this stamp was the first stamp printed. Blah blah blah. And you sort of um, again, you don't you don't want you're not you know. Um, if I was just in this. From a purely financial standpoint, I would hate it. Just I, I, looking at things in terms of dollars and cents wouldn't do it for me. Mm -hmm. And I try to again convey that. And a lot of times, you know, if somebody comes in wanting to sell, and then the more I talk to them, they remember that they have a nephew who's maybe ten years old, and 
maybe he'd be interested in carrying on yeah. his relative's collection. And, and, you know, again, you, you do have to soften the blow. And um, uh, again, not everything is just, is just money oriented. A lot of For these sure. things are intangible. For sure. Yeah. So Michael, you want to take that? No, I mean, that's the, the perfect answer. We had two people come in today that I, you know, I looked at the collections. It, it, it wasn't quite something we could help them with. And we suggested they either give it to someone in the family, donate it to, there's a museum kind of by us, near us, called the Spellman, uh, Cardinal Spellman Museum in uh, Weston, Mass, that takes donations. And they, they use the stamps to teach uh, kind of uh, youth, uh, children, stuff like that. And then um, I, I tell them if, they, if they're not looking to donate it, if they don't have someone in the family, maybe they can go to a local club or a local show um, and a collector will buy it directly off of them sometimes. I, I never throw a collection out. I, can, I never recommend any. People come in and they say, oh, if it's not worth 50 bucks, I'm just going to throw it out. I said, still don't. Yeah. Don't do that because they'll t there will be people who take it as a donate as a donation, and there'll be people who pay, you know, forty, twenty bucks for it. Even if that's not a lot to you, somebody will want right. this collection. Yeah. The, the, uh, the no matter thing, what it is, you you talk about how you can tell immediately when something's like all nineties cards. So yeah. when you look at a stamp yeah. collection, you can usually tell within a couple of seconds whether or not it's going to yeah. be worth. You know, uh, you sort of have to start thinking of how to break the bad news. So that's maybe my least favorite yeah. part of the job. Is I will sit there going page by page, even though I know I'm not going to find <laughs> looking for something, exactly <laughs> something, and I'm, I'm like I'm like talking myself through the bad news. Yeah. The whole time. yeah. How am I going to? What tact am I going to use to break yeah. the bad news? So I just labor over every page, postponing mm -hmm. the inevitable. Some people take it great. <laughs> other people uh, less so. Um, right. so mm -hmm. yeah, that, that, that's probably my least favorite part of the of the job. I've had. I've I've had some pretty upset people um, in my life yeah. go through. <laughs> I had one guy throw his binder right in the garbage at a show once. So I'm like, oh no! I'm really sorry, but you may be able to salvage the binder. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> um, so, also one of the questions I wanted to ask you: Have you ever heard or come across? You probably get this question a thousand times. We get this question all the time. Have you ever found something really cool at a flea market? A really valuable card that or card? Sorry stamp uh during your travels and looking for things in in odd places michael so it it wasn't me but i like to i think about this story a lot and it was a um there was a collector i knew at one of the first uh milwaukee show the first milwaukee show i went to the the show milwaukee 2017 that i went to where he was talking about his favorite find so India issued a set in, I want to, I'm going to just completely guess the year. I think it's like 1957, the Gandhi set. Okay. Um, it, was, had, it was in the late 40s. 40? 1940? No, I think it was late 40s. I think around 1948, I want to say. Okay, 1948. So it had it had four values, um, three lesser values, and then the high value, which was the most valuable uh, stamp in the set was the 10 ruby. Uh the lower values were all small and then the 10 ruby was large. So he was going through a, just a dollar cover lot. So in, at stamp shows, some people will have these big, big cartons where every cover, they just price it a dollar because they don't, they don't go through everything and price it out. It's just everything in here is a dollar. So the set itself is about $300. If it's 
in mint condition, never hinged. If it's used, I think it's about $150 catalog value. But on first day cover, which is the when the the first day the stamps were issued, placed on a on a cover and then stamped, is incredibly rare. So he was going through the dollar cover lot and saw a full Gandhi set, the nineteen forty late forty something. Forty eight. I just confirmed. Forty eight. Okay, nineteen forty eight, on first day cover, for a dollar. Um, and he was, I, I think something like that has to be worth about anywhere, depending on condition, anywhere from six to $900, I'd say. Um, and for a dollar. So he was that, that, that story I like to think about a lot or tell a lot because it was, because I like that set and it, um, he found it from a dealer selling something who didn't necessarily know what it was he had wow we've had situations like that uh can't i have found things nothing like not in a huge money value yeah, nothing shattering, mm -hmm. but, but something yeah. like well this is definitely more than a dollar um yeah <laughs> you know so, or I, sometimes you have to point it out like are you sure this you really are selling it yeah it's a dollar okay i'll take it um mm -hmm. i don't feel as guilty um so some of the most famous and iconic, actually, before I go there, we're at the hour and 20 mark. I want to make sure I respect your time because it is uh, over that time. Are you cool to keep going for a little bit longer? If we're not boring you guys, sure. Okay. No, no, no. no. You know, no, no, no. Can, can I tell a quick hidden gem story? I don't Yes, wanna... please. please. Yeah, no, go, go ahead. Just one, my, one of my, what I think is an interesting story. Um, I was digging through a box of envelopes in the office. I'll make this very brief. Um, and it was just, it was junk. It was things that would sell for a quarter, nothing. Interesting. And then I saw um, during World War II, soldiers didn't have to put um, stamps on their mail. They had the the privilege of sending mail for free because they were, you know, fighting uh, in World War II. Right. And there was a letter from a soldier in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And I don't, I didn't know why Oak Ridge sort of triggered. Does that name ring a bell to any of you guys? Other mm. than a really sad sack country band, that's all, all I know. <laughs> I, I, it, it did something for me. So I googled Oak Ridge. And I found out it was where part of the Manhattan Project uh, was based out of. Oh, um, Los Alamos, New Mexico, yeah, yeah. Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And I found there were two letters. One of them dated like August 4th and one of them dated August 8th, 1945 from wow. Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And they had the original letters inside of them. And the one that was dated August 4th was a, a soldier writing home to his wife. He said, honey, I'm sorry. I've been very busy. I haven't been able to write you. Uh, I know you're probably getting frustrated by my silence, but uh, I, it'll all make sense soon. Just bear with me for a couple of days. Two days later, the first bomb is dropped on Japan. And the next letter was from a day or two after. He's writing his wife saying, I'm sure you've seen the news by now. And I'm sure my absence for the last year makes a lot more sense since you know what I've been working on. Wow. He was on the Manhattan Project? He was part of the Manhattan Project. Wow. And his first letter was very cagey. He couldn't tell his wife what he was doing. And then the curtain was lifted. And he could say, this is what my life has been. And these were just tossed into a box of like junk letters. And it's a, a Manhattan Project scientist writing right before and after the drop. And it just, so I showed them to one of my, my colleagues who um, uh, is not, a, he's much more clinical the way he looks at this stuff. I'm, I tend to be much more sentimental and romantic with it. And I thought these were just the most amazing thing ever. And he goes, I'm not sure they're worth anything. Like, what do you mean? Like, this is, this is American history. This is 
doesn't get any better than this. And we ended up selling them for, I think, $600 versus leaving the box that collectively would have sold for about $50. So that was my most exciting discovery was this small, I mean, admittedly a small piece of American history, but but history nonetheless. But but you know what, to to you guys' point earlier, it's it's something that was telling a story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... And I like the fact that you guys didn't dig deep for some big, rich story. You drove into the drawer for a small victory, right? <laughs> Which is what collecting is all about, mm-hmm. right? The true collector doesn't care about the million-dollar price tag. They just I was going to say, some of, some of the things, I, I shouldn't say this as a, as a business person, <laughs> some of the things we sell for $10,000 are, to me personally, not the most exciting. Versus the things we sell for $150 that have this great story. You know, we had a we had a postcard that was written the day President McKinley was assassinated in 1901. And somebody who was there wrote a little note on the back saying the president was assassinated today. And I'd only sold for, I think, like $75. And I was like, that's, I, I don't know, to me, that's that's much more exciting than a, than a $10,000. We could uh, do a whole show on World War and political history because mm-hmm. I actually am interested in, so is Kent. Um, I, I have a soft spot and we actually interviewed a guy who does civil war memorabilia. So I have a soft spot for civil war stuff and, you know, reading that's a whole other on. conversation. Yeah. In the oh yeah. <laughs> stamps actually, cause I remember I watched the documentary stamps had a big part to play in a civil war and there's some collectible ones. I'm everything escaping me now. Literally you guys just triggered this memory. I haven't watched the thing in like, 10 years. Uh, the, the history of stamps in the Civil War is fascinating because the mm. North didn't want these stamps to be legal tender right. in the South. So they right. demonetized all stamps issued prior to 1861. They said they're not valid anymore. And yeah. you've got a window of like a week or 10 days where you could trade in your old stamps for new stamps. And after that date, your old stamps were just paper, yeah. which resulted in stamps issued prior to 1861 are therefore very rare in mint condition yes. because who would have kept a, a piece of you right. know you wanted to get your money's worth but then the other interesting thing stamps had been around for about 15 years when the war broke out so a lot of people in the south were used to using stamps by this point they were had come to rely on stamps and obviously the confederate government has much more important things like moving troops and getting the railroads running they don't care about postage stamps but the people demanded postage they didn't care about the way they wanted their stamps so a lot of postmasters created their own postage stamps that were only recognized locally on the city level. And some of these stamps, only one or two or 10 of them exist. And they're hugely collectible and hugely valuable and uh, a fascinating subset of the hobby. So it is, uh, it, I, I, don't I, have to, a, I don't mean to get off topic, but I, I could. No, no, stuff. no, no, it's, this could be another topic. And I would love to do a, a stamp show or stamp show, a collectible show about stamps, just about the civil war. Cause I love that stuff very much. Um, there's also, I'm really interested in the history of American flags, which are also related to the stamps. I'll, I'll save that for another. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> but that one is, when I put two and two together, I was like, whoa, this is this is bizarre. Anyway, I will save that for another show. Um, wow, there's so much to talk about. I have, where do we start? Um, so yesterday we started nerding out about the Jenny biplane plate. So I'm going to say this six times straight. We the inverted Jenny biplane plate block. I don't think I can say that again. Um, we talked about how it's a sought after error, but then you highlighted a point that there is a modern error as well with that so, error or non error. I'll let you explain. Well, well here, so that's the 
Yeah, so I, I, I'll give the history. It's manufactured. Yeah, so my, Michael, you, I'm, I'm going to tell the backstory of the regular stamp. That's, that's tell the 2013 story. Yeah. one there. Yeah, so, so for the 95th anniversary of that stamp in 2013, uh, the inverted Jenny is the most famous stamp error of all time, arguably. Um, this was the first airmail stamp issued in 1918. Uh, two colors, so it's got the red frame, the blue airplane in the middle. One sheet of 100, they accidentally printed the airplane upside down. Uh, these stamps are, are widely considered to be the most iconic and one of the most valuable stamps. So for the 95th anniversary, the post office recreated this stamp with a $2 denomination. And Michael, what else did the post office controversially do? At the time, they also issued 100 uninverted inverted jennies uh that so it, these packages when they when they issued the stamps they're all sealed um sealed on both ends so cards. you go in it's yeah a, like a pack of trading cards hole. yeah you go in and you ask for the the sheet it's a uh, six stamp so it's twelve dollars uh you go and you ask for the sheet and they hand you the sealed envelope and you open it and in there is the sheet of inverted jennies two dollar stamps and then a hundred issued also randomly scattered throughout the United States are uninverted Jennies, which were manufactured on purpose to be an like homage. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> and they came with certificates of authenticity in the package. You were still encouraged if you wanted to, to mail them out to grading companies to get a second certificate certificate of authenticity, but they didn't really need them for that. Some people sent them in to get graded um i've seen some on the market where people actually cut out the singles and then sent the singles in to go get to go get graded um but yeah they, they've sold at auction for we our company noble spirit actually sold three of them but they they sell anywhere from i think the lowest value one sold was thirty thousand dollars and then the highest value was actually sold by us at eighty five thousand. but other auction houses have sold them in between. I think um, Kelleher sold one for sixty-five or fifty-eight thousand. They 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 go for, but the the thing is, they're not all found. So there's I think there's there. still thirty-five, I think, or thir in the thirties or forties that are still out there in the packaging. But now I don't believe you can buy the souvenir sheets from actual post offices anymore. You have to order them from USPS.com, and all of them are at um, one facility. But they're I, still out there. You know Can what I'm I, doing after this show, right? <laughs> I, I have a friend who's I'm going to try my, try my luck. I have a friend who's opened, I think, 7,000 of them and has yet to find one. Um, yeah. 7,000, so. wow. But so. we said yesterday, the advantage is, compared to trading cards, is you can actually still use these. Yeah. You can yes. sell them and they're still useful, right? So it's not like you're going to yeah. lose. Yeah. Right? Can I tell yeah. two other very quick error stories from recent post office? Yeah, yeah we'd love to hear it. Yeah, for sure. So, so th there was a stamp issued in the 1960s for Dag Hammarskjöld, who was the Secretary General of the United Nations. And um, the stamp was a, it was a black stamp or a, a brown stamp with a yellow background. And somebody, uh, right as the stamp came out, found a sheet where the yellow background was inverted in relation to the stamps. And he thought, I've struck gold. He knew what the inverted Jenny sold for. There's right. another equally unique sheet of stamps, and he, he, he felt like he'd, he'd uh, you know hit the jackpot. The post office found out about this. 
and they didn't want one of their errors to reach this sort of notoriety or collectible status. So what they did is they announced they were actually going to issue the inverted stamp. So they issued millions upon millions of them Oh, in order to make sure they would never become valuable. So they printed just as many inverted as huh. they did regular. So that mm -hmm. if you went to the post office, you could buy both of them in equal measure. So that was a way of the post office sort of covering for the covering themselves that's, and that's interesting. making sure they didn't, you know, inadvertently create a rarity. The other interesting one, there was a sheet of stamps in I think 1995 called Legends of the West, which had Annie Oakley and uh, Buffalo Bill Cody and all the great, you know, Wild West figures, uh, including a gentleman named Bill Pickett, uh, who was a uh, um, uh, early uh, uh, African-American. Um, uh, he was Wild West entertainer, had some early film roles, really integral part of the Wild West. Um, except the post office didn't do their homework all that well, and they put a picture of Bill Pickett's brother on the stamp <laughs> instead of Bill Pickett. And this was, this was very quickly caught uh, before the stamps went on sale, but they had all of these stamps printed with the incorrect image. So they actually held a lottery where you could, uh, you know, basically write into the post office and they would pull names at random to give you an opportunity to purchase one of the error stamp sheets. So they're still fairly rare. They sell for about $75. Um, huh. That was another thing where they averted a crisis and made a fun sort of lottery out of it for collectors. So the post office does still mess up from time to time. I mean, they're printing billions of stamps. It's natural that they're going to uh, get things wrong every once in a while. And their responses have differed over the years. The other story I know about is the one with the CIA and the inverted lamp. Yeah, CIA inverts yeah. another one where, um, uh, yeah, that one was was uh, discovered by CIA employees in the eighties, um, and the controversy was who over who bought the stamps. Was it CIA? You know, was it like a, an official government expense that went to buy the stamps? And they actually, if I'm not mistaken, and a friend of mine, uh, a colleague of mine was involved in this whole thing in the eighties, but I believe they reimbursed the CIA for the cost of the stamps and felt like they owned them then. Um, and it actually went to court and was this huge scandal, but those still sell for, uh, 15, like 10, 000, 20, right? yeah, 10, 15, 20,000. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. For, yeah. yeah. It, it was a sheet of a hundred. And I think they accidentally put five of them on mail and those were never mm -hmm. seen again. So if someone out there received one of these $10,000 stamps on a letter, gracious. Uh, yeah. they were able to salvage the other uh, 95 or so. So yeah, that's another modern error that's uh, sort of gone down into philatelic lore. That's uh, that's uh, that's awesome. Um, I'm glued to the edge of my seat listening to both of those stories. So that's definitely cool. <laughs> um, a couple of comments in here. So name. Oh, this must have been in response to my buying collection. Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> Name is not bored, so that's good. There's only a couple of people that. watching, but people will watch more after. Most people will watch after the show is taped. So a question here is, are vintage stamps worth more than modern stamps, or does it depend? In sports cards, there's a lot of modern day modern cards of new players worth more than vintage players in the current respective Hall of Fame. So you guys sort of blew my mind last night when we were talking about Otani briefly and what a what certain Otani cards yeah. hold these days. And and he's you know still feels new to me. He's been around a couple of years. Um, I, I would say that's less of a thing in stamp collecting. Mm. Um, you know, sports cards are sort of tied to a player's performance. I would say. Um, so obviously there's a lot of hype 
somebody's rookie season. And if they deliver on that hype, I would imagine the prices uh, increase uh, proportionately. Um, whereas stamp collecting, you know, it's mostly, st- you know, there, I don't believe it's a law, but it's a, a an unspoken or unwritten rule that you can't issue a stamp for a living person. So it's not like we could have a stamp for a celebrity and the value could be tied to that. So um, I, I would say that's less of a trend in stamps that modern stamps go up in value, unless you get something like the the uh, uninverted Jenny. Um, right. so, uh, since, I, I think since since these stamps are mostly tied to historical events or intangibles. Mm-hmm. There's less reason for something's value to, uh, you know, go up if somebody hits for the cycle or wins rookie of the year or something. Also, for uh, U.S. specifically, other countries issue um, stamps with living people. Yes. Oh, that's oh, just true. Yeah. Okay. I was just about to throw a statement out there, which is completely useless. Which I said, stamp people on stamps don't break their legs unless you're in different countries. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and a lot of, there there are a lot of countries that historically have produced stamps not for use as actual postage stamps, but rather as collector's items. So every mm-hmm. election cycle, there's these countries that will print stamps with the candidates on them, or they'll print celebrities. Oh, right. and, and there are a lot of countries who's, again, it's a big part of their economy. If you're a small island nation or something, selling commemorative postage stamps can account for a good bit of your uh, GDP. So, um, so yeah, yeah, other countries aren't as stringent with uh, with the rules as we are about putting... But countries like... Um... Like Liberia, the, the, with the uh, election polling and, and everything like that, they actually issued a uh, an error when they thought Al Gore had won the election. So there's a bunch of souvenir sheets out there of uh, of Al Gore, President Al Gore, on uh, on a souvenir sheet, which is an error. Wink, wink. <laughs> uh, more of a marketing ploy than anything. Yeah, uh, because yeah. more recently there were also President Hillary Clinton stamps printed. I remember those, and, ones. and yeah, you Hillary. know that those were uh, <laughs> those were printed well before the election. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's mysterious how they sneak out to collectors mm-hmm. uh, 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 and, and dealers who charge. But people uh, still keep an eye out for the for the Gore ones. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah. So over to you, Kent. So, so it's not just error stamps that have value. Now, for example, like the British uh, Guiana one cent magenta stamp, you know, that, that has a lot of value. Now, are there stamps that are not, that are errorless that have a lot of value? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah. I, I would say much more um, uh, from the 19th century before stamp collecting was really a phenomenon. And, and stamp collecting in the U.S. really peaked around the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, I would say. And by that point, everything that the post office was issuing was being issued in large enough numbers uh, mm-hmm. that everybody who wanted one could get one, and the supply will always exceed the demand. When you get into non-error stamps that are valuable, you're really looking typically, and there's exceptions to every rule, but the earliest days of the hobby, when things were not well documented, when mm. people might not even know that a certain stamp was issued until 20 years later, when somebody found one on a letter. You know, to, nowadays, all eyes are on the, the stamp issuing administrations and, um, you know, it, it's impossible for something to be issued without piquing people's interest. But you go back to the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, and there are stamps that were legitimately issued for postal use with nothing wrong with them, no errors. And they still can bring hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. And you're looking at things like dyes, perforations, watermarks, 
you're looking at color types. I mean, you're looking at not just the design of a stamp and saying, okay, that's a one cent Franklin. You know, you're looking at so much more. It's got X number of types. It's got, you know, this, yeah, these frame lines. It's that's, it's that's a good point that things that look identical superficially, uh, you know, once yeah. you look at you, you have to count the number of perforations. Um, yeah. Really? That, that cool. matters. Uh, whether or not the paper that it was printed on is watermarked, that matters. Yeah. Uh, what printing method was used? Was it a rotary press? Was it a flat plate press? Was it lithography? There's certain stamps that were printed by different methods. So you have to look yeah. at that. So yeah, th that's also when you get into um, uh, rarity is when maybe at the time everything looked the same. Yeah, it was just a one cent green stamp with Ben Franklin on it. But it wasn't until mm -hmm. later that people realized, oh, this is on unwatermarked paper and it's perforated. 10 versus perforated 12. Uh, so little mm -hmm. things like that, that again, to, to the average person off the street mean nothing, uh, can have a huge impact on value what as well. About, um, what about art? So I was just thinking about this now. Like some stamps, the art on it is, is quite unique, right? They put a lot of effort into the art. Now, what's, uh, what's interesting is for trading cards, it's a two and a half by three and a half, right? So it's like it's the size of the card is this big, right? A stamp, relatively speaking is quite small right mm -hmm. so the, and if you look at it it's actually it's like micro printing right so if you look at a stamp in here there's micro printing on there yep. so the artwork mm -hmm. matter a lot with stamps like i appeal is that uh, something that is a an important qualifier it can but a lot of the most popular and expensive stamps are the most primitive so uh you know typically yeah. when, when something was well engraved or well lithographed that meant they were going to print a lot of them and typically, mm. they're going to be more common. Whereas, let's say a postmaster in British Guiana or in Mauritius ran out of stamps, and the next ship from the UK is not going to be there for a couple of months, they looked around them and basically had to make do with what they had. There was a missionary in Uganda in the 1890s who wanted to set up his own postal system, didn't have a way of producing stamps, but he had a typewriter. So the Ugandan missionary stamps are literally him typing on a piece of paper and then I think he, if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on this, but I think he used his wife's sewing machine to create perforations between the stamps. Are so you serious? Hand -type <laughs> oh, really? Wow. And the sewing needle would pu punch the holes in it. So in that case, it is the least artistic, ugliest thing ever produced. <laughs> but the, but it's, the, it's the rarity factor. So sometimes rarity mm -hmm. and beauty correlate. Mm -hmm. And other times you look at something and you're like, there's no way. I'd pay more than $10 for this and somebody pays 50,000 for it. So a lot of yeah. times the most primitive crudely produced stamps can be the, the rarest. So um, if anything, there might be an inverse relationship there. Interesting. That's really interesting. And also I beauty is an added beholder, but I like that. That's a different uh, perspective than trading cards. I would say. Kent. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's a question from name actually. Oh, let's see. Um, when I was a kid, I watched a great movie about stamp collecting called Tommy Tricker and the Stamp Traveler. Have you guys ever seen it? I've never even heard. I just Googled it. I've never I, heard I've, I've heard of that. I've never actually seen it. Um, yeah, I, I actually haven't seen that. I've heard it mentioned by a bunch of different people. Oh, really? Okay. A film in which a young boy, Ralph, and his sister discover a magical ability to travel the world riding within postage stamps. Complicated by a series yeah. of rules, they are soon lost in such far-flung place, far places as Australia and China. 
uh, I, I'm going to. Yeah, I think they use like, like a, uh, the, the Canada Blue Nose. Um, they use one of the, I think one of the Chinese uh, junk junk ships. Um, this looks great. Yeah, I, I, I know the plot, but I'd never, I've never actually seen the movie itself. It looks it's, like the Goonies meet stamp collecting. I love the fact that you know <laughs> Goonies, so I don't feel so old. Good name, good question. Uh, yeah, good question. I, I appreciate that because that's going to add to my cultural philatelic knowledge uh, once I've seen that. That'll be a lot of fun. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm probably going to be up tonight researching stupid stuff about stance now that you've kind of opened my eyes. There's a great eyes. podcast you can listen to. No. <laughs> yes. I, I, I was listening to it today while I was working. That's why I picked up on some of the references. Uh, but I, there's also... Wait, I'll stop. Let's get back to our questions before we go off topic. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, so, so, fellas, can you tell us when it comes to philately about the Grand Prix d'Honneur at Belgique Award? How does one get bestowed this honor and award? So this goes back into the um, the exhibiting side of things where, yeah, once mm -hmm. you sort of max out of national exhibiting, um, the, these international shows, which are all around the world, there's one in uh, Hungary next year, there's one in London next year, Oh, uh, so in the there's actually one in Canada next year. Um, oh, uh, we're going to be heading up to Toronto for eight days, first yeah. four days of stamp show. Um, but but yeah, the, these international shows each has their own Grand Prix award. That um, the, the, this is really what people are vying for. I think the national exhibiting is just sort of a means to an end to get to that next international level. Um, so it, it's always really competitive and really fun. There was a stamp show in Stockholm a couple of years ago that just a lot of this happens behind closed doors. And of course there's, like I said earlier, there's politics involved, and right. but in Stockholm, they decided to make the entire thing transparent and they actually had a big display screen that was, um, showing who got points in real time. So you could follow oh, along almost like a horse race, like who's, you know, what judges are allotting their points to what uh, exhibitors. So yeah, the, the international exhibiting is, um, is, is really intense and really fun and you get wrapped up in it. So, um, so yeah, Canada will have one of those shows next year. The U S is next one will be in Boston in 2026. Planning is already underway five years out. So wow. uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun part of the hobby. Huh. Just to show you how nerdy I am. Just so you're, you're probably noticed me looking off screen. I'm actually looking at an auction and bidding on while I'm talking to you. So I'm like looking and I'm looking through the price, and I'm like I'm getting close to winning. Anyways, um, so pardon me, I'm not trying to be rude. It's just trust me, I'd be doing the same thing. Yeah. Go ahead, Ken. So when it, when it comes to stamp collecting, we kind of touched upon it earlier. Um, does it does it matter that the stamps you collect have a cancellation mark on them? Should you always try and get the stamp off the paper that it's here to, or just leave it attached to the paper? So this kind of tied back to the whole, in order to, um, in order to use a stamp, you have to damage it and then you have to kind right. of carefully remove it to preserve any, uh, preserve it from being damaged any further. There's actually people, once you remove it, who collect cancellations. Oh, so they'll okay. collect. It's it's very popular in um, in different Asian markets. There's the the Japanese market for collecting cancellations is just is incredible because they want the specific town cancels on that stamp. So obviously it would be better on the cover. Uh, now, whenever you see a stamp on the cover, uh, the first thing I say to people is please and, don't please don't soak that off. 
I'm gonna interrupt really quick. Cover, yeah, is just our insider oh, term for envelope. Like, oh, okay, oh, okay, okay. If the stamp <laughs> is on that. cover, that um, it, 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 again, that's just a that's one of our our industry quirks. So yeah, yeah when we say cover, we mean envelope. Any? No, envelope. we have a, a lot more idioms. Trust me, that stuff like we call things <laughs> breaking wax. They haven't used wax on hobby packs in probably four years. <laughs> So there's an example, right? Yeah. Um, no. So the, the 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 cancellation collecting market is is quite large, and there's actually within the United States been been entire books written on how rare a cancellation is based on the population of the town, how many people were mailing letters, outgoing letters, things like that. So how many letters could have possibly been mailed out of that town makes that town cancel rarer and the, an entire rarity index was built for the united states on specific towns mailing out of them and into them so uh, yeah i mean sometimes cancellations can really make or break the stamp but i mean it again it really depends on yeah. it depends on the stamp yeah, I was gonna say some people just do mint, some people do them on yeah. the envelope. So it, it, it's really a, a collector by collector basis, and certain stamps mm -hmm. are, are rarer mint than they are used. There's sort of no um, no one size fits all solution for this. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I would say the general trend is that mint stamps are more valuable than used stamps. Um, but yeah. again, for every rule like that I can give you, there'll be uh, hundreds of exceptions. There's there's a number of Italian or German stamps that are worth many multiples used than they are actually mint. Huh. Wow. And items like that you'd really want to send out to make sure that they have a certificate because people will try and put fake cancellations on oh. them to increase the value of the stamp. It's much easier to like create that. a fake used stamp than it is a fake mint stamp, obviously. Yes. So yeah. there's I think uh, I was just going to add, I think that some of the worst cancellations I've seen is somebody at the post office taking a pen and going, eh. This mm -hmm. huge subject of debate on yeah. Twitter, actually. Yeah. Uh, everyone well, yeah. has their own opinion on the pen cancel. Some people think that it's real and it proves that a postal clerk actually handled something. Other people mm -hmm. think it's hideous and ugly and defaces the stamp. Um, so, yeah, that's actually a, a hot topic of debate. It's funny because when I was doing eBay packages, I would make the postal clerk date stamp my postage because if they ever came after me, I'm like, well, go look at the date. I mailed it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Oh. I mean, a lot of the eBay envelopes don't fit through the machine. So they've got to either yeah. use a pen stamp or a pen. So yeah, and that, that is a, that's a contentious issue. They used to get really annoyed at me. And the real reason I did it wasn't for, it was two phases. One is I could prove that I posted, I mailed it on that day. And the other one was I didn't want it coming back to me when I was like, <laughs> not postage. Those are the worst mm -hmm. days. You come back home and your envelope return uh, insufficient funds. I'm like, I was just there. <laughs> I was just there. You're robbing me. Um, so just like sports cards, there's always a feeling of, of FOMO or fear of missing out. What are some suggestions you would give to people to avoid the pratfalls of buying stamps to make a quick buck or two? I'm letting you take this one first, Michael. So, um, yeah. I mean, making a quick buck on stamps, I don't think has been, uh, I, I haven't come across too many people who try to buy one year and then sell the other with the intention of um, turning, a, turning a profit because it's, it's a collector's hobby, really. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of people that I can see in other hobbies, you know, they kind of 
ride the market with coins, right. it's a lot easier. Um, I, I don't know how the the trading card market is for that. I, I would. It seems like the prices are easier to track. There's a lot more grading. There's a lot more slabbing, things like that. They they have finite prices that you can track, and stamps don't really have that because everything is so condition condition based. You could have you could line fifty of a fifty U.S. number ones, which is the first stamp ever issued in the United States. You could line fifty of them up on a table, all in used condition, and and they could be worth fifty different prices, fifty different varying prices based on how large the margins are, how how heavy the strike is on the cancel, if they've got fins, if they've got tears, if they've been repaired. So it, there's it's it's a lot harder to make a quick buck off stamp collecting unless you really really know that what you're buying is going to appreciate in value in the next few years and that's that's hard to tell. The other thing I would say in terms of fear of missing out is and this is advice that I've been given and I've tried to pass on to people. There are certain stamps that you need to make compromises for that you need to, yeah. maybe it's got a little tear in it. Maybe it's missing a perforation or two. Maybe mm. again, if, if you're going to collect, um, you know, T206 or, or 1933 right. or something, you're going to have to compromise, uh, you know, if you ever want to add these to your collection. But if you can afford a nice example of a stamp, you should all, you should always buy the nicest copy you can, you can mm -hmm. reasonably afford. Um, you know, yeah. A lot of people think they can, again, you cut corners and, and compromise on quality. And if you're just looking to fill as many gaps as possible, that might be fine for you. But if you're looking to get the most out of your collection, both in terms of enjoyment and when it comes time to sell, splurge on that stamp that's never hinged. Splurge yeah. on that stamp that's well-centered. You'll never regret that. You you may regret you know buying the stamp that's off-center or has a little tear or a little uh, crease in it um yeah. that you may you may regret later on so I, I you know i was always told early on you buy the nicest you can afford and i think that's yeah. really important advice in stamps so yeah you don't want to be making excuses for your stamps later down the yep. down the road All right so got here, it kent and i have a very fierce battle on this so kent always goes and buys <laughs> the nicest he can afford i always err on the side of caution so my gut feel is there are far more, let's pretend a, I'll use it in your case. There's a one stamp, the best stamp is worth a million dollars, right? And the next stamp is, the next three stamps below are 30, uh, or next grade below is worth $30,000, right? There are far more people in the world that'll spend 30000 than they'll spend a million. So I would rather own three $30,000 cards that I know I can move versus one card, which I may have to find that special guy to buy it. So I'm like, okay, sure, it's, it makes a lot of sense for me, but from a liquidity point of view and an outlier, if I, you know, yeah. in 20 years when I want to sell everything and, and retire, what's going to go yeah. further? So I I'm okay making smaller amounts of margin, but I know that my reach is much more significant, right? If it was purely, so that's, I always, everything I buy is from evaluation of where I am now, where I'm going to be in 20 years, where I'm going to be, where's the market going to be in 20 years, right? Now, no one's ever perfect with that, but that's kind of how I've approached everything. So Kent and I argue because Kent can go and buy the top dollar card, and I'm like, ah, well, I'd rather get five of those, right? Because I can, I know there's, I know more guys that are broke than I know that are rich, right? So that's the kind of attitude I have with that. 
But I understand quality is quality. And from a purely collecting standpoint, 100% agree with you. From a liquidity point of view, from a business sense, I have to hedge. <laughs> I have to hedge, right? I have to hedge a bit. Yeah, anyway, I can see. I can see both sides. I really, I really can't because you you only need those two people. If it's a million dollar car, right. you only need two people to want it. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, there's a maybe a lot more people who are willing to spend the thirty thousand, but then the the cap is still at the. 30,000. But if it's the million dollar, if there's only one, if it's unique, the two people who want it, want it really badly could go for more than that. Whereas the $30,000 one, if there's multiples of them, you know, it, it they will appreciate in value, but maybe not to the, to the multiples that the, that the unique, the unique item always and I love that your position on the screen right below Kent. So now I'm getting <laughs> on the right side. So anyway, let's just move on before I get more counterpoints and completely debunk my, my buying philosophy. Um, so when I get into some of the things we talked about the other day was actually, no, we'll, we'll skip this one question. We'll go to the next one because I want to be sensitive to time because it does get a little bit late and I know we're, we can get tired. So I at least I get tired. Um, from uh, how when you're in your travels of doing your work and you're working at an auction house and you're doing buying and selling, how often do you come into counterfeits? Is it really hard to detect? Uh, it sounds like you guys use a lot of loops and technologies and reference materials and fake uh, mm -hmm. issues to compare against. But I just want to get your your thoughts on that. Yeah, so there's sort of two uh, two sides to this coin. The first are stamps that are outright forgeries. Uh, somebody took paper and printed on it and made it look like a stamp, and nothing about it is genuine in any way. Um, those are typically fairly easy to spot if you know what you're looking for. There are some exceptionally well-done forgeries that, that can be difficult, but by and large, if you've handled enough of these things, the outright fakes tend to be... Um, uh, you know, they, they're more intended to uh, defraud uh, beginners, I would say. What's much more dangerous are altered genuine stamps. So, okay. for example, um, uh, you know, people will... Uh, so you've got a sheet of stamps, and it's perforated, and the stamps around the outside of the sheet don't have perforations on that side. Oh, right, yes, right. Yes, okay, so yeah. a stamp with perforations on all four sides is worth more than a stamp with perforations on just three sides. Yeah. That's the weird quirk of collecting. It looks, it's more balanced. It's more aesthetically pleasing. So people will take a stamp that is not perforated on one side and add perforations to it. Or uh, we we're talking yeah. earlier about how the hinging will disturb the gum. People will smooth over the gum a little bit. They'll make it look like it's never been hinged or maybe a stamp has no gum at all. And they'll apply a whole new layer of gum to the back of it. They'll remove a cancellation to make a used stamp look mint. So they're genuine stamps that have just been doctored in order to make them more valuable. That's much more dangerous, I would say, than a, an outright fake. I was going to say, I can't imagine anybody trying to duplicate a perforation because they're so small, but they're oh, doing right. it. They're oh, yeah. doing it exceptionally well, too. Uh, really? Some of these wow. things are so hard to detect. Absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> so again, these are the things that we have to look for. They're, they're very tough. You have to handle hundreds and thousands of stamps before you can really feel confident. Luckily, there are a couple of um, third-party independent 
expertizing services mm -hmm. that will, um, you know, provide their unbiased opinion. That's great. Um, their opinions are generally uh, uh, held in very high regard. Um, but for for you know, on our end, we don't want it to get to that point necessarily. We want to be able to do a lot of this in house. Right, so right. We're, we're, mm -hmm. we're faced with this um, basically every day. I mean, you know, people will go yeah. as far as to find an old envelope and put a genuine stamp on it. And then create the cancellation and write in the address and huh. we'll create these concoctions that are very dangerous to the untrained eye. That is insane because we deal with that too. So we have fakes from the vintage point of view. We have fakes from the modern point of view. And of course, we deal with fakes on a different level like memorabilia gets repatched. So it's it's good to know that you guys are seeing it in a sense. It's yeah. also bad that, you know, it's unfortunate, what? right? And then there's a, a third completely different case. So, so there's, there's forgeries, there's altered stamps, but then there's also counterfeits, which were intended to defraud the postal service. So mm -hmm. to this day, if you go on eBay, a lot of people will be selling stamps under face value. Yeah. And typically these are, um, you know, being shipped uh, from other countries and not being produced here. And they're counterfeit postage stamps. They're being oh. made to be put on mail to defraud the government. So, really? and this has been going on since the 19th century as well. So that's a case where they're fakes. They may have tricked the post office, but now they're highly valued by collectors as well. Um, huh. So, so, so that's a whole other class of, th th that's a case where a, a fake can be more valuable than the real thing sometimes, or oftentimes. And, and if I may branch off there, we have this whole other conversation in the hobby where where people are repairing things for conservation purposes so we've spoken to people and there's people with in the uk and then there's people within the united states who will actually repair stamps repair covers re repair documents to make them more appealing to the eye not to change their monetary value but to conserve them as historical documents for collectors down the road and this is an interesting conversation because this is something that's so much more accepted in the coin world where you just dip a coin oh, right, and, you, right. and just you, you know ngc has their own conservation department where we send coins in and, and say you know can you grade this and they come back and they say actually we want to clean it first you know, we'll clean it and then grade it. And then it's an extra fee. And then they expertly clean the coin. They alter the coin and then slab it to make it more valuable than if they hadn't cleaned it in the first place. And this isn't something that's widely accepted among a lot of philatelists. They see it as, as you know, dis disingenuous. They, they see it as not you know, they see it as repairing stamps because that's something that's if a stamp is repaired, it makes it less valuable. But then there's these people who are repairing stamps, not to make them more valuable, but to to preserve the stamps. They're not doing it to to fool anybody. They're just repairing. So there's the stamps a, for good intentions. In the trading card hobby, there are there mm -hmm. very few because it's a it's a no no to touch a card. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Alter any card, any way, shape, or form. In art, mm -hmm. and you mentioned that you touched on this, but in the art world, yeah, very high quality pieces are restored, and that's okay. Yeah. Now, here's the funny part. Those things are worth millions upon millions. Some of these pieces, right? Some in the ten to twenty yeah. million, and they're okay to be restored. 
But yeah. in our industry, the minute you even blow on the card the wrong direction, it's trimmed, it's yeah. altered, and we have forums and groups of these evangelical detectives that will go and hunt mm -hmm. you down, right? Yeah. To, you know, mm -hmm. expose you. So it's a very touchy subject in the trading card world. Now, you just exposed something. It is a nuance with both sides of the coin. From a historical significance point of view, which we understand, yeah. hey, we want to make this look like this is a piece of history. And then you get the true collector saying, don't touch it. So your world yeah. is, is, is a bridge between two worlds. Ours is yeah. direct no. Art is yes. Right? And you're in the middle. So yeah. I, I, I can't right say right. one is worse or better than the other, but I'll let you comment on that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really tough is because on one hand, you need to provide a document saying that you've altered the stamp. But if it, it's really the the intention behind it, because anyone can send in these stamps. You could have a stamp dealer who buys a stamp with a tear in it, send it to someone to repair the stamp for conservation purposes, and then throw out the document. Right. And then sell it as a genuine stamp with no faults. So, it, I mean, it's 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 a debate within the community that I feel like the community hasn't really picked a side yet. It, obviously, these people who are conserving items are, are doing tremendous work repairing and preserving some items that would deteriorate over time if they weren't doing this. If they weren't doing the work, these items would definitely deteriorate, lose value, they'd be destroyed in one way or another accidentally and over time. But the fact that they're doing it, does it devalue it or does it add value or does it not change the value whatsoever? We could have, we have like seven shows we can do out of this show. So. <laughs> um, I'll be, yeah, that's actually a really interesting segue. So I want to just stop for a quick second. It's a two hour mark. We have <laughs> three questions left. Shall we finish and then call it a night? Or are you guys tired? Hey, let's do it. I say go for it. There's three good. questions good. left. Yeah. All right. One all over again for you guys. All right. We're going to go for it. Again. <laughs> this is the first time since the first show. So we were joking about our first show that went three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. That three and a half hours is very stressful. So I was like looking after questions. This has been a breeze. So mm -hmm. let's get back into it. So one of the questions I skipped over, we'll talk about real quick. So I want to paint a scenario for you, and you're going to tell me what your feeling is when you hear the scenario. I take a, I get received mail, I open the envelope, and I throw the envelope in the garbage with the stamp on it. What happened to your feeling then, <laughs> Michael? Yeah, we got to pull it out. We got to <laughs> pull it out of the out of the trash. Um, wipe the, you know wipe any trash off of it you just it, i can't i say this to so many people i can't in good conscience recommend throwing out any stamps under any circumstance uh, we sell literal bags sometimes of of stamps uh, that are just cut off envelopes we call it kiloware in our uh in our business and and we weigh them by the pound and i'll sell 50 pounds of stamps in a literal trash bag and really? people will buy them yeah absolutely and people wow. buy them because everything is collectible. That's no amazing. One should be throwing out anything. I, I I'm a bit more measured when I when I was starting out. Every <laughs> single stamp had to be kept. Um, and I, I, yeah. I I've gotten a little bit better. I would say just in terms of hoarding. My my thing is I would like to have 
um, at least one example of every new stamp issued by the post office. So if it's mm -hmm. the same flag stamp that comes in on every other envelope, I don't have to keep every single one. But when, you know, the Wilt Chamberlain stamp comes out or when the Harry Potter and Star Wars stamps come out, um, I want to keep one of each. I, I would love to have one example of every, you know, current U.S. stamp issue. So if I see something new that I haven't seen before, oh, it's the Star Trek stamp or the Batman stamp, I will cut those off. I have a drawer in my desk that is just full of, uh, you know, corner clippings from envelopes. If you've got, um, like, all your cousins are like, you don't write me anymore. Well, I can call you. No, no. Please write me. And, and I, I have this dream that it's going to be a rainy send them the stamps day, to and I can, just, um, I can just tackle this drawer and do something with it, but um, it'll probably mm -hmm. never get to that point. It'll just keep growing and growing. Yeah, I like the both of you. I have not ever tossed a stamp in the trash on an envelope. I've actually cut them all out, and I have boxes of them sitting, sitting somewhere in my room here. But yeah, I'm a very lonely person. People don't write me, so I don't have boxes of little stuff. <laughs> but I do stuff like this where I'll keep, you know, stamps. That yeah, I, that I cut off the corners. Um, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with these things. But whatever. Anyways, um, don't throw them in the trash. Just don't throw. Well, them in the trash. I have to contribute it to Michael's fifty dollar grab bag of random stamps. <laughs> I, mean, I, I have a part to play in this. Michael will send me yeah. eBay listings sometimes, where it's like a twenty pound bag of stamps that I wouldn't. You know, no offense to anyone buying this stuff, but I wouldn't. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I wouldn't pay like twenty or thirty dollars for it, and it sells for like six hundred. Wow. Yeah. Blows my mind the price, but you know people people enjoy just digging through the stuff and seeing what. That's true. They do, they, they do enjoy digging through. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's, it's the diamond in the rough. Uh, you know, it's the treasure hunt, and I, I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not knocking that at all. I I um I have uh, a whole, I, I admire that. My grandfather gave me a whole box of stamps from India, so I'm gonna go look there. Look at those now. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll have the Gandhi 48. Never know. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I do, I'll be calling you both. So, um, one question I wanted to ask, and I never, I don't know if we asked this in here, but I'll ask you real quick because I actually came to my mind is you did mention stamps get graded. Who are the grading authorities that look after stamps from a grading perspective? So, in, in the US, there are four expertizing services. So, when you send a stamp off to one of these companies, there's two things you're looking for there is grading, which mm -hmm. uh, with stamps, um, it's so with, with with comic books, for example, it's right. uh, the condition of the comic book. It's how creased or how dinged up is it. And I think cards are similar. Yes. Whereas with stamps, on the one hand, you do have the condition. Is it intact and everything? But what they're really looking for is the centering of the stamp. So you never really mm -hmm. think about how well centered a stamp is until you start looking for it. So this is Beckett. So Beckett graded. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So oh, I yeah, bought yeah, this because I thought it was really cool. That is cool. So yeah, with with, with you can even see that the margins have to be perfectly balanced. That's yeah. what we're talking about with grading and stamps. So it's less the condition and more the uh, appearance of the stamp. Mm -hmm. uh, Wait, uh, sorry, the camera is playing tricks on me. I don't know if you can see that. Cool. You need to you need what any mean you need to do what the trick what uh, Michael and Charles said yesterday have it on a black background. Oh really? <laughs> okay, hold on. So it, 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 that's it. Now you can see the first. Oh yeah. 
That's, uh, that's a three. That's a three-sided perf, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You could uh, <laughs> add perforations to it. It so is a three-sided. You're, wow. you're looking at the centering, and then you're also looking at the authenticity. So these services mm -hmm. um, sort of provide two roles. It's again authenticity and condition slash centering. Um, the two biggest ones in the U.S. are called the Philatelic Foundation. They've been around since 1945. They're in Midtown Manhattan. Oh. Um, and the other one is more recent and sort of um, uh, uh, giving them a run for their money uh, is called PSE, Professional Stamp Experts. Uh, they're out of Henderson, Nevada. Um, so those are the, the PF and PSE are both equally recognized and equally legitimate and equally accepted um and uh you know they, they've each got their own strengths and weaknesses i would so say would, so would you say those are the two that most stamp collectors would send them to absolutely those oh. are the two they, they, again there there are other ones that are um that do have some you know again everyone's got their own thing they right, specialize right. in but the pf and pse are the two um uh that, that we refer people to all the time so i'll show you another one i picked up that was it's a canadian thing so it's Terry Fox. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, block of four. Yeah. So yeah. Terry Fox is a legend in Canada. He ran across Canada to raise uh, money for cancer. Um, so this is unused. So I thought it was cool. Uh, a guy I know mm -hmm. that the trading cards had these, so I picked those up. And those uh, are still the Lickham ones, right? I mean, these are the ones that have never been. Well, see, his house, I thought it was cool. I'm like, oh, they've never used. <laughs> And then you're like, we have to destroy them. Like, oh, okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so, anyways, that was cool. So, sorry, keep going ahead. You were saying. Oh, do you have anything to add, Michael? Uh, no, I mean that's it. The other ones would be uh, the APS, which is Apex, and then the last one is um. Wait, I forget the name of it. What is it? PSAG is out of Florida. PSAG, um, yeah, and, yeah. And the thing is, you know, PSAG. a lot of these, a lot of these companies will send the stamps to like independent experts on the stamps, so they're they're mm -hmm. all drawn from the same pool of knowledge, basically. So I right, think that yeah. uh, of the big four in America, you're basically looking at comparable certificates. It's um, yeah. it's you know, who do you personally feel most comfortable with, and and uh, the, the, um, there's no reason to. Um, to knock any of them, I would say those four are all yeah. equally respectable. So, and that's that's just within the United States. Sometimes, if we get material, foreign material, you send it to actual the actual country. We get German material, we send it to Germany for German experts. Oh, okay. Oh, you get British material, you sell it to you send it to Great Britain, the Royal for for those kind of experts. Interesting. Um, and actually, APS, I believe you mentioned, is one of your your uh, sponsors, I guess, for is what we're looking at. So APS, ASDA, and Stamp Collector Magazine. And APS must be the grading company you were talking about? So they, the APS is the American Philatelic Society. They have a grading division. They're, they're sort of the um, uh, the national governing body of Stamp Collector. Oh, oh okay, and, okay. And, and within that, you know, they put on the annual show. They put on the show in Chicago. They have their grading service. They um they they've got a lot of different um different branches within the organization. So how does it feel to have backing from three fairly prominent um, entities in the stamp world? Yeah, it was um very unexpected <laughs> because we just thought we were starting something you know small for ourselves to talk to our friends, everything like that. But but to have actual support from legitimate organizations that have been around for supporting collectors for decades is just you know it was it's been a tremendous uh it's meant a lot to us 
and it's it's given us a lot of opportunities that we would not have had without their backing. The, the Stamp Collector Magazine has interest, introduced us to so many collectors across the pond, and and you know, the APS has given us a lot of opportunities, like the Tiffany Talk and the ASDA has been such a tremendous uh, sponsor and and been so supportive to us. So yeah, I mean it's it's meant a lot. Um, it definitely wasn't something we were expecting awesome so we have three questions gentlemen three left three left um unless i come up with something off the top of my head i'm sure i will i just won't <laughs> this time um kent the rest is you buddy yes so the use of, a te of technology such as youtube zoom instagram live feeds has allowed you to bring your show and the love of philately across geographical areas around the globe with little to no restrictions being able to bring uh, hobby content to other fanatists around the world, what's what's the feedback been like? It's been um, it's been great. We've met a ton of people that that we would never have gotten to meet, and a lot of people who do the same kind of thing um, within the hobby, but for different reasons. So people who show their own collections, people who pick out individual stamps, and then and then give stories on those stamps after researching. People then go into topical material and research the, the different topics with it that they've picked out for themselves. So it's given us the opportunity to meet these kind of people and see the different way that people can utilize social media to kind of spread their love of philately in a similar way to us. Uh, when it kind of became real for me was Michael and I started doing a weekly live stream uh, about two months mm -hmm. ago mm -hmm. where you know, Michael and I talk on the phone constantly about what's going on in the hobby, what auctions are there, what new stamps are there. And we thought, why not broadcast this to, you know, maybe other people would be interested. Right. As well. Sure. So we, we held the first live stream and we, uh, we heard from a couple of people in California that we started it too early. So we we're like, oh, we'll push it back a couple of hours. And then, then when we pushed it back, we heard from somebody in Japan who said, now you're starting it too late. It's midnight for me to have to <laughs> and, and when we started having to worry about people's time zones right. uh, for a live stream, I was like, wow, it's, it, that, that made it real that, um, you know, you really are interacting with people. Uh, you know, it's great to go to a yeah. show and see people from your, um, you know, your state, definitely your time zone. Um, but when, you know, we go on Twitter and there's people from Australia, there's people from Japan, there's people from uh, Great Britain. That, that's what makes it a lot of fun is, um, is, is, yeah. Uh, just getting to to connect with people we otherwise, you know, th these people are out there, and a lot yeah, of people, are. they're they're not involved in the more formal side of the hobby. They don't go to shows and they don't participate in auctions. But it doesn't mean they don't have the passion. And I feel like Twitter and Instagram, in particular, have allowed us to connect with those people who otherwise would be collecting in sort of a parallel alternate universe yeah. where they have the same feelings and passions and excitements as we they have. Do, yeah. But, but yeah, the, there's, the, the, before you know the last couple of years, there's been no easy way to get a hold of them, and now we can, mm -hmm. and that's been really rewarding. It also yeah. helped your your business ventures too, right? Because you're exposing um, your business side of things too, which is you wouldn't have been able to otherwise, right? So uh, expansion. Yeah, that's out. always been kind of a secondary to us mostly. Yeah. I mean, we we do a, nice a, a tiny bit of self promotion sometimes, but we like to talk to other people. We talk to yeah. other dealers. We talk to other auction houses. So it's for us, it's a lot about it, talking to people about the hobby, talking to collectors and everything like that. And we don't really try and, um, you know, 
I respect. We don't that. really try to talk about ourselves too, too much. And, and, and if and if it helps our respective businesses, that's a great side effect. But it's uh, it's it's definitely not why we set out to do any of this. Mm -hmm. We can tell. I, that I, I love hearing from people saying that they connected with a dealer that we spoke to because of an episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're discovering, you know, adjacent philatelists, adjacent dealers, adjacent auction auction houses to us. We just want to help people find the material that they're looking for and, and allow them to collect yeah. uh, better and more easily. Awesome. Two more questions. Two more questions. Boys. To go. So, so the second <laughs> last question, uh, what advice would you give to those who are watching tonight and then later on as this episode gets replayed on YouTube on wanting to become a first-time stamp collector or as you would say, a philatelist? Um, organizations help. You know, you never have to do anything alone. I definitely recommend getting at least the Scott beginner catalog. They have like a tiny one like this that has the coils for, for people just, um, but yeah, organizations reach out to an organization to see if there's any assistance in whether it's in local discovering what you want. Yeah. Um, you yes. know, again, the, the APS serves the whole world and especially the United States. Mm -hmm. And then you might have your local, you know, your county or your city has its own stamp club, but de de I agree with that. Yeah. Definitely don't do it alone. You should never mm, yeah. collect. You should never collect alone. Yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. You should never collect alone. That's just no. a recipe for yeah. disaster. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I would say is, um, uh, sort of be very flexible. Don't have any preconceptions about what you want to collect. Uh, I mean, I'm sure mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, I, I don't know uh, everyone's story in the card hobby, but I, but. I, it would be my guess that collecting indigenous rookie cards maybe wasn't the first thing uh, somebody said <laughs> to collect. You sort of have to find your own way. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things I collect, I, I collected very early on. Um, but I've also discovered so many new and exciting things that I've just stumbled across. So I think if you go in with blinders on and if you go in with a very narrow focus, you might get burnt out quickly. You might run out of stuff to collect or just feel like you're putting yourself into a box when you don't have to mm -hmm. do that. So I, I think being very open-minded, um, you know, obviously you don't have to collect the entire world because that's a bit, uh, a bit overwhelming as well. But um, again, you never know what's going to catch your eye. Um, I'll be digging through a, a box of envelopes or a box of stamps and just see something cool or weird or something that looks like it has a story behind it. And it might not fit into any of what I collect. It's just something that I like. Um, and, you know, I, I could probably talk myself out of buying it. Oh, this doesn't fit what I do. Um, but again, I, I think that if you go in with an open mind and allow allow yourself to get distracted, um, that there can be a lot of fun uh, in that part of the hobby as well. Or I somebody can just, just yeah. pick a topic like your mom did and just just do it all cats. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's like again, now she collects cats uh, cats on postcards, and she you know again she, again there's so many different angles to go. I think it's, it's important too to not have this image of stamp collecting is just uh, an old guy in his basement with a, right. with a pair of tongs and a stamp mm. album. It, it's, it, it can be like that if you want, but it can also be so many other things. Don't have any preconceptions about it. I think is really important. Awesome. All right. All right. Last question. Yes. So we want to thank you both Charles and Michael for, for lasting this long um, and, and actually for, for being our guests on our, our show tonight. Uh, we really do appreciate it. So we usually uh, end off our show with this one particular question. And uh, right now, uh, Michael, I'll throw uh, Who should I throw it to? I'll throw it to Charles first, and then I'll throw it to Michael after. 
So, so what inspires you, Charles? And then we'll go with Michael. Um, one of the big things that inspires me, um, especially with the letters and the envelopes with the stamp still on them is this sense that, you know, again, I mentioned early on, maybe F Scott Fitzgerald used this stamp, but, but even if somebody wasn't famous, even if somebody wasn't noteworthy, these letters and these envelopes are a piece of their life. And these mm-hmm. people have long since moved on. Obviously at some point, either they or their descendants got rid of these things because they're in the hands of collectors now. So they got separated from the people who they meant something to. So for me, one of the things that inspires me is sort of a sense of obligation to the people who came before us to keep their memories alive, whether it's reading a letter they wrote or mm-hmm. again, just, just preserving a piece of, of these people. Um, when I travel, I go to cemeteries for the same reason. I want to keep these people's memories alive. I want to visit their graves. I want to read their letters. Um, you know, again, they may have been a totally insignificant person. Maybe they didn't do anything big and exciting with their life, but but these letters are still testaments to them. Um, and we had a, a gentleman on, the, the guy in Japan, who we, uh, we've tried to work our schedule around. Um, and, and he researches the stories behind people who send, and he said he does it for the same reason, that these were, were living, breathing individuals, and all we might have from them is a letter or an envelope. Uh, so me, it's, it's, it, for me, it's partially a sense of duty to, to keep them alive in whatever small way I can. So that's one of the big things that inspires me. You know, somebody, the content of the letter meant enough to somebody for them to actually write it in the first place. And it's up to us to be sort of the curators and stewards of that letter today. So again, that, I, I think that's one big thing that inspires me is, is just the humans behind these things. That was a very good answer. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, no, that was, because you, I was gonna say pressure's that. on you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the people, but, but maybe not the people behind the stamps themselves, like to, to take, Charles's answer, but the people collecting the material. So an answer just like Charles is the passion behind the actual collectors is is really what inspires me because no two collectors are identical. Just mm. like no two stamps are really identical. The, the people collect in such a unique way. The fact that everybody's looking for something new and I can talk to someone and I ask them what they collect at a show and they say, well, I collect this, this, and this, but I tripped on a chair and now I collect this. And, you know, they're all searching for something else to build and to find. And, and it's the the thrill of the hunt. And it's just the, the unique human experience of trying to, to collect things, to, to find the passion there. And, and, that's really what inspires me is what what people can find in absolutely anything and what they what they love about the hobby itself. Those are very elegant answers I, and, and uh, I appreciate it and I can sense the genuine genuineness of it. So I appreciate you both for doing this. Thank you. So, Thank you both. a lot of fun. Again, there's so many yeah. tangents we could have gone off on. I oh, think. yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I, this, this is yeah. not felt like... We, we could do another show literally on the other tangents. I, I have ideas. <laughs> there's certain angles I want to go down now, and I think you both have kind of... No, let, let, let's let's all keep in touch after this. This has been a lot Absolutely. of fun. Yeah. Yeah, sure. yeah. So, yeah. 
what we'll do is I will uh, you guys hang out there. We'll end the show. And for the, the one person who stayed behind this long, thank you very much for watching. Um, it's, it's a bit of a it's an hour and twenty six more longer than we normally do, but this will be taped and up on YouTube so everyone can watch it forever and ever plus a day. And I believe Kent, we're going to be doing it again with these guys very soon. I would think so. Yes. 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 So we yes. all agree that you guys are definitely going to be our, our guests again. So we can't we would wait. Love to. For sure. Awesome. So hang out there. Hang out there. And uh, just... Oh, so, so name it later, guys. So so name... There thank you go. Thank you for sticking around this whole time. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for the great questions. And uh, yeah. Uh, really I got to give a uh, name a big... Like, he stood around for two and a half hours. Even I wouldn't watch my own show. <laughs> yeah. Wow, don't, wow. don't forget, though. Don't forget, though. Name's on the West Coast. So it's not, it's not even late for him right now. <laughs> True. But he does have a family. Anyway, yes. Um... Uh, you guys hang out right there. Let me just end the broadcast, and we'll take it from there. Perfect. Everyone else, right. good Thank night, you. and we'll let night. you know who our next guest is when we book them. Cheers.